SEP Fanfic Readings presents Measure of a Man by In a Days 22. Chapter 1 The Journey is the Destination. March 13, 2011. The quietest people have the loudest minds. Hermione had always found the quote thought provoking, not only because it was true, but also because she couldn't think of a more accurate statement to describe Theodore not. He had never been loud always reading and studying, which was something Hermione appreciated. As an adult, his pensive nature had transformed into the sort that frustrated most people, but never her. It kept Hermione alert, drew her attention, and constantly made her wonder what he was really thinking. Some people were quiet because they had nothing happening in their mind. Some had too much, but Theo's silence was neither. In fact, his squinty green eyes and purposefully understated presence reminded Hermione of yet another quote. It takes one to know one. And because she knew exactly what that look meant, she was well aware that Theo was scheming. Hermione allowed it as she sorted through the tiny crumbs of clues she'd picked up over her last six years working for him, clues he'd inadvertently dropped that spoke of his intentions when he wouldn't. Whatever Theo wanted from her today was important to him. Personal. She didn't like it one bit. Theo didn't discuss anything remotely personal, not with her or with anyone else. At least, not while they were at work. Pansy was the exception, but they had been lifelong friends. Hermione suspected that his strict division between work and play had been the only belief he hadn't shed after the war. Everything was business, and had been since he'd spent his entire family's fortune buying and reviving the bankrupt hospital in a move that, while altruistic, had been far more lucrative than anyone had expected. That had been eight years ago when Theodore Knott Sr. died during a prison break and he had been left alone, desperate to atone for the sins of his father. Anything that could make Theo, of all people, change the well-established status quo was certainly not an endeavor Hermione wanted to undertake. Instead, she watched him, her answer to his unasked question ready. Theo's office was large with neutral walls, light wood floors, sparse furniture and decor, the artificial lights gave the room a clinical glow. Even with Pansy's attempts at adding bits of masculine flair by way of artwork, rugs, and the black dragonhide sofa in the designated sitting area across the room, it still wasn't particularly grand. Hermione thought it was fitting for the man Theo was. Except for one thing. The children's dictionary all alone on the corner of his desk. That didn't fit. The man himself stood at the aforementioned bookshelf, skimming over the assortment of spines and pulling off a book here and there. Theo was as tall as Ron, and handsome in a way that made it clear he was aware, but had never needed to use it for his benefit. He was too smart for that. Honestly, Hermione had looked at him once or twice. She wasn't blind, and she might have subtly hinted at her interest. Ideally, Theo was her type, now that she understood herself better. He had an odd sense of humor, was put together and astute, level-headed but decisive, and had the bonus of being tall and extremely attractive. Theo, on the other hand had never shown interest outside of friendship, and that was it. But it never stopped her from looking appreciatively, as well as critically. Dressed in fitted gray trousers and a crisp white shirt, with the sleeves rolled to his elbows, Theo exuded a tactical calm that masqueraded as stoic indifference. But Hermione knew better and waited patiently for him to remember that he wasn't dealing with his normal ilk. "'I'm quite busy, Theo,' he responded by bringing his selected books back to his desk before he sat down opening the first with the ease of a man that didn't have a meeting with the hospital board in twenty-seven minutes, twenty of which he would need to debate with her on the topic of whatever he was scheming about. 
He didn't have a lot of time to spare, but flipped the page with unhurried confidence anyway. With his eyes still on his book, he picked up his porcelain teacup and brought it to his lips, taking a light sip of the piping hot tea that she had brewed from her own collection, before she turned up for the meeting that had spontaneously appeared on her magic scheduler that morning. Theo was a particular sort who took his tea, no matter the variety, steeped for exactly five minutes with no sugar because he wanted to enjoy the flavor. Boring, but Hermione couldn't bring herself to judge anyone who appreciated the classics. It was such a rare thing these days. As he read, Hermione reached for the tin thermal and poured herself a cup as well before settling back in her chair, crossing her legs at the knees and taking her first sip. The tea was a blend of peppermint and rosemary, grown and prepared in her vegetable patch several months ago, a perfect remedy for the afternoon slump they both tended to suffer. Hermione took a reviving inhale of the steam from her cup before ending the purposeful silence. "'If you delay any longer, you'll be late. The board will not be pleased. I'm already late for a visit with my own parents, and my mother won't be pleased either.' That wasn't exactly true, but he didn't need to know that. Not that it mattered— Theo's silence held out another full minute. He never spoke too soon or too late, only at the precise moment he meant to. "'As usual, your blend is excellent.' His voice was even and firm, but there was something gentle in his tone that indicated his compliment was sincere. He placed his teacup on the saucer and looked at her again before closing the book he had been reading and extending it to her. Hermione peered at the cover. "'Neurological diseases and their effects on wizards.' She didn't accept it. I've already read this, even though it wasn't her area of expertise. Twice. Hermione started in plant poisoning after quitting the ministry and finishing Healer Academy, but hadn't stayed long due to the popularity of alternative healing, a branch that didn't quite fit inside the walls of St. Mungo's, but one that was needed after the war with the sharp rise in mental health concerns and specialties that didn't quite fit. Hermione typically worked with recovering potions addicts, long-term patients that had been revived, and the occasional terminal patient— slowing the progression of their disease. Her unique method of therapy was very involved and multi-layered, but also extremely effective, which was why she only accepted one patient at a time, and was allowed to work primarily out of her home. Theo had so much faith in her methods and success rate that he allowed her to pick her own patients. He opened his desk drawer and retrieved a folder. Carefully, he placed it next to the book as if it were supposed to explain everything. It, in fact, gave her no clues at all. Take a look. Tell me what you think. Then he went back to his tea, pouring himself more from the tumbler. He must really enjoy it. A cursory glance at the folder was enough to brush against the edge of her curiosity simply because it was completely blank, which didn't look like any other patient file Hermione had seen. Each file at St. Mungo's had had at least basic information on the front, so the healers wouldn't forget their patients' names. Inside, all identifying information had been rendered illegible, which meant she didn't have the proper clearance so there was need for discretion. Privacy. Interesting. Hermione had several immediate theories, but until she had more information, she wouldn't show any signs of interest. Instead, she started from the beginning. By no means did she give it a detailed read, merely a cursory skim. Hermione noted the symptoms, drowsiness, auditory hallucinations, bouts of confusion and forgetfulness, increased pulse and sweating, and temporary motor control issues. Then she read the differential diagnosis. Poison dark magic, a slow-progressing curse. No specific curse was provided, as there wasn't one diagnosis that fit the wildly varied symptoms. Hermione flipped the page to scour the notes from the magical scans and tests, but found only incohesive results. 
She turned the page to the second opinion from a German healer that was utterly useless, and suggested the patient was experiencing the physical manifestation of stress. Recommendation. Rest. And the third from a Japanese healer with a lazy diagnosis of brain pox, which made no sense. Recommendation. Further testing. Finally, the fourth, which was from an American healer named Charles Smith. After the largest battery of tests Hermione had ever seen performed on one patient, he ventured outside of the realm of dark magic and violence-caused afflictions, and landed on a diagnosis that fit. Dementia. Or rather, a magical form of it that manipulated the nervous system, which, according to the book next to the patient's folder, only sped up the progression of the disease. The form this patient had was typically fatal within eight years in muggles, and only due to complications. But in wizards? Three years. Perhaps four or five, if the patient underwent an intensive care regime that focused on... Hermione froze as a realization wrapped around her. No. Theo nodded like he'd expected her answer, not saying anything until he finished his tea. The quiet sound of the cup being placed on the saucer echoed. I'm more than willing to bargain. Five years for an assignment, Theo! She scoffed at the absurdity of the request he hadn't verbally made. How important is this patient? To their family? Very. Not the answer she was looking for. Hermione, who refused to let him play on her compassion, fixed him with a hard glare, ready to ask the question that was almost burning in her brain. And to you? That he didn't answer. No, wouldn't. Ah, so at least in some capacity, it was personal. Theo didn't have any living relatives, but he did have family. One of his own creation, and even though Hermione knew enough about Theo to pick up on the clues he let slip, she only knew a select few members of his family. Pansy wasn't sick, the witch was currently on the hunt for the perfect clawfoot tub for Hermione's bathroom. Blaze was in Egypt, closing the deal on a rare artifact for a buyer, the less she knew, the better while his fiancée Padma was hard at work at the St. Mungo's. Daphne, who worked with Blaze, took on lighter tasks as she prepared for the birth of her child with her husband, Dean. Goyle had lived in America with his wife and children for years. Lastly, according to Harry, Malfoy had been insufferable while making quite the splash as the leader of the Ministry's terrorist task force, a role in which he ironically terrorized everyone in both the Aura's office and the Department of Magical Law Enforcement about the ongoing investigation into the Death Eater's base of operations. What was she missing? There was always one thing she missed. Theo leaned back in his chair, his elbows on the arm, forefinger and thumb on his chin, kneading as if contemplating a particularly difficult chess move. They are willing to triple your salary. He was toying with her. Hermione scoffed. I'm not going to dignify that with a response. It's part of the contract, he explained with an easy wave of his hand, allowing himself a brief glimpse at the large but decorative clock on the wall next to the door. There are additional benefits provided with this opportunity to make the long-term assignment easier for you. You'd have the ability to set your own hours, your own staff of two private healers at your disposal, to provide in-home care around the clock, and I am to relieve you of your role as floater staff member. None of that is appealing. Hermione already set her own hours while on assignment as her patients often required more than potions and rest. She liked doing things her own way, which was one of the many reasons she preferred to work alone. She took time to get to know her patients as people, not as a collection of diagnosis and reasons why they ended up in their care in the first place, and customized her plans to each person's individual needs and goals. When she needed some help, she could readily find it in a book. More importantly, Hermione liked working as a floater because it offered variety and experience. 
It kept her sharp and allowed her to broaden her knowledge on other areas of healing that she hadn't specialized in. It's an excellent offer. She gave him a noncommittal shrug. Be that as it may, I don't like walking into anything blind. You're asking for years of my career and won't tell me anything worthwhile to assist me in making that decision, so forgive me for being wary. I've provided their file. Hermione chuckled dryly. You've provided the bare minimum thinking it would pique my interest, and I'll admit I am intrigued, but more about your role in this than anything else. It's not like you extend yourself this far. However, it's not enough to tempt me into accepting the assignment. They are willing to allow you to add your own terms to the contract. Hermione's inquisitiveness nearly outweighed her reluctance. Who is it? That I can't tell you unless you agree. And I won't agree without knowing their identity. Hermione allowed her counterpoint to linger and continued to savor her tea. And then, with the same glacial pace as Theo, she finished it and placed the cup on the saucer. It appears we're at an impasse and you're going to be late. He fixed her with a challenging look that she more than gladly returned. The board can, and will, wait. While his response wasn't incorrect, his tone gave Hermione more evidence regarding the importance of their conversation. She allowed her mind to process the task at hand, attempting to comb through the more nuanced details of Theo's life in her search for answers. But she didn't get very far, because Theo was as intelligent and observant as he was private and stubborn. Hermione had learned, when she came to work for him, that he only shared what he wanted to, or was legally obligated to divulge. And though he often spoke to Hermione in confidence, Theo hadn't divulged enough for her to formulate a substantial theory. So, she tucked her suspicions away and got to the heart of the matter. I won't concede. You wouldn't be Hermione Granger if you did. It wasn't the first time she'd heard those words in that context, but where there was usually an undertone of either disdain or mild annoyance, Theo's only conveyed his admiration. Had she been anyone else? His words might have softened her to the idea of this mystery patient. But, like he said, she was Hermione Granger. My answer is still no. And because she wasn't heartless, she suggested, Susan might be able to assist, or maybe Padma, or even Roger Davies. They were the other healers in the more specialized field. All three would be excellent choices for a long-term assignment like this. There were others, as well, that were just as capable and would likely be interested in the terms of the contract. They asked for the best. I ask the best. Theo shrugged as if it were that simple. Is that flattery, I detect? Merely a factual statement. As her final answer, Hermione shut the file and sat the book on top of it, using her finger to push it back across the desk. His eyes were narrowed as he looked down, then back up at her. When he sighed, she knew he was ready to be honest. Good. There's always been a human element to your care that Roger cannot emulate, which puts you higher in my regards, despite his various accomplishments and accolades. Padma is busy planning a wedding, and as our werewolf specialist, I need her here to deal with the influx of new bites. Susan, he trailed off momentarily to find the correct word, Susan is too sensitive for this assignment. Too sensitive for a terminal case? Hermione raised an eyebrow. We're healers, Theo. Death is something we have to face every day. She stared at him hard, ready to go to war for a witch she considered a friend. It's something that we all have already had to stare into the eyes of once. We know how to take care of ourselves and each other when we lose a patient. I don't think you know her well enough to make that assessment, nor do I think you're giving her enough credit. He shook his head. That's not what I meant at all, Hermione. Thea was attempting to simmer the flames of her infamously protective nature. 
I simply meant the patient is testy and stubborn, and I need someone with the right constitution to challenge them, as they tend to run roughshod over people. Not in a callous manner, but they have a strong personality. Susan is more no-nonsense than assertive, but you have the right temperament. Hermione found herself even less persuaded. Thank you for the backhanded compliment, but would you say yes if I arranged a meeting? She considered his proposal, then him, and the fact that he was giving her a guarded expression that seemed hopeful. Hermione sighed and took back the folder in the book. I'll meet with them, but I maintain the right to say no after. And she likely would. That's reasonable. But, Theo trailed off, using his fingers to straighten the quill lying on his desk, just keep an open mind. That didn't inspire any confidence in their tentative deal, but Hermione considered herself a reasonable person. Sensible. I can do that. They didn't shake on it, nor were there any binding formalities to their agreement, only a mutual understanding and a look passed between them, followed by a slight nod of their heads. When should I expect them? I will arrange the date and the time, and coordinate with you regarding your preferred consultation time. Thank you for agreeing to meet with them. Hermione gave him a look. And I'm not making any promises. Duly noted. The discussion was over, and Hermione thought that her business was completed and she was free to go. But Theo didn't stand to leave, even though he had a full ten minutes before his meeting with the board. Apparently their conversation wasn't over. The Ministry has sent over an informal offer for you to join the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. They want me to discuss it with you. Theo picked up his teacup and took a sip. This is me discussing it with you. Hermione coughed delicately with her fist to stifle a laugh at his outright defiance. It wasn't the first time they'd had this conversation, and the reason the Ministry hadn't sent their offer directly to her was because she would have torn it into shreds and moved along with her day without a second thought. She'd gone on a sabbatical after her incident with every intention of eventually returning. Honestly, quitting hadn't been planned. It was a spur-of-the-moment situation where Hermione found herself thinking about going back for the first time. Suddenly, she felt suffocated by the crushing weight of anxiety and responsibility. When Hermione caught her breath, she knew she couldn't go back. Not like that. Not when she wanted to recapture the love that she had for working hard and feeling like she was accomplishing something important, making a difference, even one that was small. She just wanted to recapture the love of life she once had before getting caught up in the push and pull of ministry politics returning to a life where she had to split herself in every direction requested and be complicit in creating the illusion of peace the Wizengamot wanted to show the people. It wasn't appealing. It just left her feeling empty and used. Which was what had prompted her to write her resignation letter, part of what made her decide to apply to the Healer Academy, and what had led her to approaching Thea with a request to join the department that had been created to help combat the Wizarding World's post-war mental health crisis. I'll write back and tell them you declined. You could also tell them to stop offering. I think we both know that they won't. It's just like we both know that this is merely an opportunity for you to get your second wind. I've been here for six years. I think I can safely say I won't go back. Theo continued drinking his tea and never responded. And because he still made no attempts to move, Hermione asked, What else? With just a hint of suspicion. There had to be something else, some subject touchier than this mystery patient and the Ministry's job offer. There was a reason he'd strategically left it for last. There is also the matter of the threatening letters we've received. Ah, thirteen years had passed since the final battle, and the Wizarding World was still not at peace, still dealing with Death Eaters, and still ripe for change. Hermione knew that revolutions never took place when people were content and cared for, 
but when they felt disenfranchised and vulnerable. The Death Eaters had kept that thought in mind and believed that killing the famous boy who lived twice and his allies under the Ministry's watch would scare them into striking the match that sparked that revolution. The threatening letters, however, weren't just sent to her, Harry, and Ron. They extended out to the Weasleys, Malfoys, Luna, Neville, and even Theo's created family, who were all considered blood traitors. Or literal traitors, as far as the Malfoys were concerned. Right after the war, their letters would have been more effective in scaring her. Now they were an irritant at best. How was it delivered? Hermione ran her finger along the wooden arm of the chair. The letters usually came by owl or messenger, always to the hospital. She had worked out a spell years ago that made people as unplottable as their homes, but everyone knew where she worked. Her abrupt exit from the ministry position seven years ago had been... public. This one was delivered this morning by an imperious muggle who had been bitten. Greyback? Yes, but the muggle tested negative for lycanthropy, like most of the others. Which was a relief, but with the full moon soon, that was likely to change... Padma's patient count had been steadily on the rise for more than the last year. He walked into the hospital as if the wards didn't exist. Hermione blinked at Theo in confusion. That move was a sharp deviation from the norm. The letters had always been petty threats, but the added bitten muggle and security breach felt like every bit of the warning it was. We can find you, no matter how well you hid. Before she could ask, he continued— the Terrorism Task Force interviewed him. The Obliviators modified his memories to include the fact that he liked his steak rare, and someone from Muggle Relations sent him on his way with a gift card for a steak dinner. Nice to know, but Hermione had other questions. The security breach? We're looking into it. But that was it. Likely it was all he could tell her. In the meantime, in light of the security breach, the Ministry wants to assign you a security detail for your protection. It wasn't the first time the offer had been made, and it wouldn't be the last. Theo looked serious. I think you should consider the offer. There's a werewolf that's been roaming loose since his prison escape three years ago. He's out of control and has taken a liking to you. I'm aware. The liking wasn't new, but Hermione kept that to herself. He was out there, waiting. It would be wise for you to consider the protection. Hermione picked up her beaded bag, the file, and the book off his desk. She would need it for the patient's meeting. Did Harry put you up to this? He lifted one brow in response to her question. It told her everything she needed to know. Yes. She shook her head fondly, chuckling to herself. Harry had become quite meddlesome since becoming a father, but they were at a point in their lives where they'd been best friends longer than not. He was one of the people Hermione considered a part of herself because of how well he knew her, and vice versa. Harry must have known she wouldn't be very welcoming considering he had made the suggestion and tried to circumvent her. Nice try. I am not scared of Greyback. You should at least be cautious. Theo's warning seemed to come from a place of concern. He's rabid, and he'll continue to get worse until he gets a taste of what he wants. He gave her a meaningful look. There's only one thing you can do with a diseased animal. Put them down. I am cautious. She settled back in her seat, more cautious than he knew. Every now and then she could hear a wolf howling at the moon near her home, and there were no wolves in her area. She knew, but she also knew her wards were impenetrable. Greyback or not, I think by now you should both know that I am my own security. One corner of Theo's mouth quirked. I figured you would say that, but I had to try for liability purposes, and to be able to honestly tell Potter that I gave it a shot. That's all I wanted to discuss with you today. 
he shrugged a little, and stood to prepare for the meeting that he was now late for. Summoning his jacket with his nonverbal spell and putting it on, he adjusted the collar and sleeves with great care. Theo picked up a small stack of folders, likely the hospital's fiscal budget for next year, and cleared his throat with his fist covering his mouth. The tea. Hermione smirked because sometimes Theo's quiet nature made him appear aloof, but his little signals gave him away. They had been friends for a few years now, and he still wasn't used to asking for what he wanted, when it pertained to himself. I'll send some by way of Pansy. Thank you. Hermione rose from her chair and was halfway to the door when she remembered something. Why do you have a children's dictionary on your desk? Theo almost ignored her. He did that sometimes when her questions were too personal. But then he sighed. It's a gift for my godson. That was interesting. Also odd because not once had he ever mentioned a godson, but not unexpected because it was Theo. The man had a methodology behind every action. Oh, how old? Hermione tried not to sound as curious as she naturally was. Theo looked at her as if to say, nice try. Five, as of roughly two months ago. Interesting. Albus's birthday was next week. If magical, they would likely be schoolmates. Why hadn't Theo mentioned him before? Hermione had a better question. You bought him a dictionary? She deadpanned with a straight face and a large helping of sarcasm. For fun? And everyone says I have no imagination. Hermione had never seen Theo look as awkward as he did right then. He doesn't play much, and he enjoys the pictures. It will be a useful gift to him as his reading skills and comprehension increase. Sensible and practical, of course, but when she extracted both of those things from his statement, the only question that remained was simple in its essence, but deep and challenging in its answer. What sort of child doesn't play? March 14th, 2011 the kind of peace found in nature was irreplaceable, which was why Hermione loved the location of her home. She experienced every aspect of nature just stepping out of her door, or even just looking out of her window. A colorful sunset and slow sunrise, endless greenery and life. Hermione could breathe in air so fresh it felt like she could live forever, and listen to the rain so loud she could hardly hear herself think. There was a silent, picturesque beauty that couldn't be duplicated. Winters that should have been exclusively dark and desolate were light. Springs were promising and transformative. Summers were full of growth, life, and hard work. And autumns were crisp, yet refreshing enough to enjoy a hot tea while bundled in a blanket. Blending during the transition between seasons was even better. Like now. Winter had begun its slow march towards spring in a series of steps, both forward and backwards. That started with unseasonable warmth last week. The chill that had returned in the last few days didn't inspire the confidence Hermione needed to undo the cloches over her row of root plants. Maybe next week. She looked around at row after row of covered vegetation planted together in groups. Three sects of plants on each row on two aisles, separated by a cobblestone walkway that led to the small greenhouse, which was larger on the inside, thanks to the only magic she used in her garden— Around the perimeter of her vegetable patch, there was a variety of flowering bushes, all mulched to keep them safe from the cold. All was silent and well, except for the young chickens in their coop that was celebrating their first couple of days outside her bathtub, and so was she. If someone had told Hermione seven years ago that she would be an ex-employee of the ministry, she would have laughed in their face and deemed them mad before running off to her next meeting. Had another person told her that she'd have an extensive vegetable patch with chickens and live with no neighbors for kilometers, she would have argued with them that they would never, ever leave her central London flat. But she had, and here she was. 
Life had a way of adjusting her priorities while simultaneously crumbling all of her expectations about how her plans would turn out, until it was nothing but dust. Ash. It had been hard to see initially, but now she knew of the beauty in the breakdown, the joy found in discovering her true self and restoring her strength, courage, and determination. It had been necessary, but Hermione had cleared away the rot and negative decay of her old life to create the space needed for new growth. And she had grown, was still growing. Hermione turned when her wards notified her of both the end of her quiet time and the arrival of someone she hadn't expected, Daphne Greengrass Thomas. She was dressed in layers due to the chill in the air, but not enough to hide the fact that she was five months pregnant and irritated with everyone. Hermione didn't blink twice when she stormed out the door armed with a fork and a pie. She thought even less about her mood when Daphne sat on the magical swing with a huff and began aggressively eating while it slowly brought her to Hermione's side. Recognition dawned when the swing stopped and she actually looked at said pie. It was rhubarb. "'I made that for pie day.' The serrated glare Hermione received in return told her that she would be making another, which made her sigh with resignation. Did you at least bring me a fork? As it turned out, Daphne did. Apparently she was in the mood to share both the food, that wasn't hers to begin with, and her feelings, the latter still more of a shock than the former. In the years Daphne had eloped with Dean in a move no one had seen coming, she had never been one to share her innermost thoughts, and tended to internalize everything. But then her entire world flipped upside down when she found out about her pregnancy and lost her sister within the same week. The combination had shaken her to her very core, and she'd emerged from the aftermath as someone more inclined to share, which was where Hermione came in. Probably due to needing an outlet or at the direction of her therapist, sometimes she would show up and sit on Hermione's swing. Sometimes she talked, sometimes they sat in silence. She never knew why Daphne sought refuge here, but she had never turned her away. Today, she wanted to talk. I went to visit my nephew. Oh, Hermione replied in a detached manner as she forked a piece of pie. It had come out just right. And how did that go? Admittedly, she knew very little about Daphne's contention with the Malfoys, in particular, Narcissa, but knew very well it had to do with her nephew, Scorpius. It went so well that I'm here to keep myself from going back and yelling at every adult Malfoy, even Draco. Hermione internally winced, but chewed while nodding along. As it stands, it was either yelling or an emergency appointment with my therapist. You just happened to be home, and as the most sensible and least compromised by the situation, I figured I would come here. We'll sit here in silence, you'll say something wise, and the urge to yell will pass. Is that all I need to do? Hermione smirked at the blonde witch. I should try that when Harry's whinging about Malfoy. Daphne rolled her eyes. You can try, but I doubt it'll work. She looked around and chuckled. Not even the level of zen you've achieved out here with your herb garden, chickens, and isolation can ease the friction between those two. Hermione hummed in agreement. The swing took them slightly higher, feet farther from the earth. They continued sharing the pie that was still warm from the charms, though Daphne ate most of it. Silence wasn't unusual with her, but the energy Daphne gave off didn't mix with the serenity surrounding them. "'You should probably relax before you talk about it,' Hermione said after chewing on a piece of baked rhubarb. "'I'm no doula, but I'm certain your stress affects the baby.' "'That's why I'm here. I think we all agree that your house is like a refuge.' Which made sense, because everyone ended up at her home at some given point of the day or week. Even Theo had been known to come sit in her conservatory for tea. Hermione rolled her shoulders. "'Well, seeking refuge is how I ended up out here anyway.' 
The two witches exchanged meaningful looks. It wasn't long before Daphne was ready to speak about what had upset her. I know that child-rearing is one of the few aspects of pure-blood culture that is exclusively matriarchal, but every time I see Scorpius's rigid routine, every time I see him bow, every time I see him withdraw, I want to shake some sense into Narcissa and tell Draco that enough is enough. Wisely, she kept her mouth shut, listened. I know he won't, Daphne sighed. He can't. Not now, with everything happening. He has security for all the reasons he should be as paranoid as he is. But I'd like it if he did. Hermione wondered if she missed something because the pieces weren't fitting together. If he did what, exactly? Take the first step. March 15, 2011 In some ways, the war ended the night Voldemort fell. But in other ways, it didn't. It merely changed dimensions. History had taught Hermione that while the death of one man could start a war, it couldn't end a war. The best way to end a conflict was through absolute victory, for them to push to the finish without letting up and to never let the enemy hide and recover. That should have happened when several Death Eaters had escaped and scattered following the Battle of Hogwarts, but it didn't. The Ministry didn't have the power or the numbers to round up all the Death Eaters. So many witches and wizards were dead or missing, tortured or traumatized, too young to understand the enormity of the task before them, and the grit needed to push themselves through the hard time and prevail, Harry included. Shacklebolt, as interim minister, had tried to organize a mission to strike the final blow, but during the post-war chaos, the newly formed Wizengamot had quietly stripped the position of the majority of its power by invoking an obscure old law, which gave them the power, above all during times of civil unrest, for up to ten years unless ended through a vote. Essentially, it turned the government into an oligarchy. A few to rule the many. Kingsley had reasoned with them to restore the power of the position, but the last minister had been responsible for heinous war crimes, an actual puppet of to a homicidal tyrant. So when a vote was called to repeal the law, the required two-thirds hadn't been in favor of restoring the minister's power before the ten-year deadline. Not just yet. The move truly wouldn't have been an issue had they learned from their history and not made the same mistakes as their predecessors, had they remembered how damaging it was to ignore the problem rather than to face it head-on. Instead of offering their support during Shacklebolt's attempts at capturing the escaped Death Eaters, they overruled everything he tried to do, offering only a small bandage to fix the gaping hole in their world and doing nothing to cauterize the wound. It really shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone when, rather than drop the interim from his title two years after the war, Kingsley Shacklebolt had announced that he was retiring, effective immediately. News of his exit spread far and wide, and criticism of the ministry had quickly followed. The Wizengamot had asked him to reconsider, but his mind was already made up. Disillusioned after their many rejections, and tired after losing so many of his friends, Kingsley never answered any of the media's questions about the circumstances surrounding his retirement. He did answer Hermione on his final day, when she stood in his empty office next to Harry and asked about his future plans. She expected something cliched like traveling or visiting his family. What she got instead was, I've always wanted to be a beekeeper. To her surprise, Kingsley bought a small patch of land and did just that. Their paths hadn't crossed again until Hermione began experiencing root problems for the first time, soon after she'd expanded her vegetable batch. Neville had given her a book on the benefits of honey that had a note with an address and an appointment time tucked inside. From the book, Hermione had learned just how little she knew about honey, namely that it was a solution to her problem. From Kingsley, she'd found a willing supplier. 
His farm wasn't very large, a nice walk away from his house. He had a total of nine hives, two were new since her last visit in March, and a third needed a lot of rehab before the honey would be viable. Hermione always brought money for the jars of honey he provided, but he never took it, so she started bringing him vegetables instead, bartering. That day she brought onions, broccoli, rhubarb, garlic, morel mushrooms, and not to forget his favorite, licorice wands. Together they sat outside, enjoying both their sweets and the tepid humidity that preceded the storm rolling in from the south. Hermione could see the wooden hive boxes in his growing apiary that was protected from wildlife by various deterrent wands, whose slight shimmer she could make out if she squinted. She kept her jacket on, but not buttoned, while she relaxed in his comfortable outdoor chair and put her feet on the stool in front of her. Kingsley still wore his purple beekeeping coverall, but had his veil up so he could enjoy his sweets. "'The bees are quiet today,' Kingsley broke the peaceful silence between them. "'I think the storm coming will be a bad one.' You should take precautions with your garden. I already have. He nodded, still looking at the distance at his bees. Good. Silence fell once more, and Hermione took the time to enjoy the breeze, watching as the trees swayed in the distance. She never intended to stay long, but always did because it was nice there, and she was rarely in a rush to get moving. Kingsley knew his purpose. He was no longer minister, but was still a fighter, a guide, and a pillar of strength. He had such a confident and calming presence about him— even when they had been fighting for their lives, high off the ground when they'd escaped from the Dursleys' home with Harry, she had never once worried about whether they were going to make it. She just knew. "'I'm thinking of starting a garden for my bees.' Kingsley looked at her as he quirked his brow inquisitively. "'Any ideas?' Hermione had several and was mentally creating a low-maintenance medicinal herb garden, going so far as to determine the height, width, and placement of the planter's boxes. I read in a book that thyme, apple mint, oregano, echinacea, borage, chamomile, and a few others are good for keeping diseases and other insects away from your bees. You'll need flowers as well. At the recommendation, her thoughts expanded. It would need to be a large, with plenty of pollen-producing plants, annuals and perennials mixed in with the herbs. A brief look of confusion passed, which made her chuckle. He didn't know much about flowers. Also, unless you have a love for gardening that I'm not privy to, it will need to be self-sufficient. I'd like that, Kingsley had a thoughtful look on his face, taking another bite of his licorice wand. I trust your judgment. She felt honored by his faith in her, and looked forward to helping him make his vision a reality, but she had limitations. It's an extensive project, far too large for a single person. I can ask Neville for help. He has several apprentices that would be interested in a project like this, for you. There were still plenty of people out there who wanted to live in a world that he had proposed while he was interim minister a world that the Wizengamot had rejected in favor of their own. While Kingsley had been interim, they had given him just enough support so no one could accuse them of outright neglecting the very real threat of Death Eaters after Voldemort's demise, but nothing more. And instead of snuffing out the enduring enemy of peace, the Wizengamot decided that the Ministry should focus its efforts on recovery and restoration to return their world back to normal as soon as possible. In theory, it was a good idea— Society had been shattered into so many tiny fragments that it was hard to tell what it once had been, long before either war. In practice, not so much. They hadn't accounted for the societal changes brought about by the war. It would truly take generations to fix the mess that had been made in such a short amount of time. They could pass as many logs as they wanted to assist with rebuilding, but they couldn't fix what the people had gone through. Also, there had been the small, very true thing about those in the Wizengamot. They weren't elected by the people they promised to protect, 
acquiring their seats in a variety of means, including inheritance. They were also human flawed, and had a different incentive for governance, one that was based on desire to rebuild their own lives and businesses under the guise of fixing society, for their own greater good. And that hadn't changed much over the years. How was Harry doing? Kingsley gave her a meaningful look, because Hermione knew one of his only regrets in quitting was leaving their friend behind. He seemed stressed the last time he was here. She took a bite of her licorice wand and chewed. He's... Harry. She smiled with a fond shake of her head, still trying to do the right thing against all odds, and they were stacked against him. Hermione helped whenever she could, but he had to work with what they'd given him, which wasn't much. Just an underfunded department of weary aurors, a task to round up all of the Death Eaters, and the responsibility to partner with the terrorism task force whose leadership had been questionable at best until about a year and a half ago. How are his efforts with the Death Eaters? About the same as ever, Hermione answered honestly. But they've managed to get someone on the inside, and there's a raid being planned, so I hope something pans out before Harry and Malfoy kill each other. Kingsley made a small noise from the back of his throat, looking out in the distance at the approaching storm clouds. I'm still trying to make sense of the reasoning behind that decision. As was she, but it wasn't her business. However, Draco Malfoy did pass or training in France, and was responsible for capturing Rookwood there, and shutting down that particular terror cell. He crippled them. Well, that was true. Hermione swallowed her candy. It's the least he could do— he used to be one. No judgment, just a statement of fact that Kingsley gave a contemplative hum in response. From the accounts I've heard, and the memories I've seen, it wasn't exactly by choice. It might have started that way, because of what happened to his father and the ruination of his family's name, but it didn't end that way. He stared at his partly eaten licorice wand, talking more to himself than to her. He had no idea what he was in for. That she couldn't deny. The haunted and defeated look on his face when he'd hesitated to identify them at Malfoy Manor had stuck in her mind. Well, that was until the Cruciatus curse smothered all those other thoughts. I suspect it is quite lonely to be Draco Malfoy right now, or at any point in his life. He's been fighting to save the future, to atone for his mistakes, but no one, not even you, can see beyond his past. Which was a sobering thought. It humbled her, and brought about a tightening in her chest and a queasy feeling in her belly. Guilt. In her defense, Hermione hadn't thought about it, or him, again until his trial. She hadn't even seen him since, only heard about him in periodic whispers over the years as her circle grew, to include some of his oldest and closest friends. It was only then that someone else, Pansy or Daphne, mentioned him by name. But they never said much, often, or around her. At least not on purpose. They were fiercely protective of him. Hermione had learned that the hard way early on with Daphne, and then more recently with Pansy. Even in the last three months, Theo would give her a disapproving look whenever she voiced an unfavorable opinion of Malfoy, as it pertained to his new working relationship with Harry, which was something that had left her incredulously blinking when the news had broken. The world hadn't decided if Draco Malfoy was a hero, villain, or a little of both. In France, he had been viewed as an anti-hero of sorts, not seen much in the public, but his actions spoke louder. They didn't know much about either Wizarding War, seeing as it was a British problem until the threat of the Death Eaters knocked on their door six years after the war. It had been then, when Draco Malfoy, who had secretly become an Auror, single-handedly organized the French Ministry's fight against them, driving them back from where they had come from. News of his success and the captures of high-ranking Death Eaters reached the ears via the Prophet, and Harry, 
The media had initially been flummoxed, but then redemption stories started sprouting here and there in subsequent years. Nothing memorable or even outside the shadow of his more famous mother. But when he returned last year in July and took over as head of the terrorism task force, the media went wild. And when they caught wind that, with Harry's promotion to head of Orr's office last month, the old enemies would now be working together. Harry hated the exposure that it brought as much as he hated working with Draco Malfoy, who he claimed was the bane of his existence. Just like old times. Regardless, Kingsley's calm voice cut through the silence. I would still pay good money to see their strategy meetings. And with another chuckle, he continued enjoying his candy. Hermione scoffed. I can safely say everyone likes Harry over Malfoy. Kingsley gave her a look. It's not his job to be liked, Hermione. It's his job to coordinate with Harry to put an end to the Death Eaters. It's not an easy job, even if he had the tools he needed, because while people respect him in public, they spit on his name in private. Perplexing, given the universal love for his mother. Furthermore, the enemy wants to personally make an example out of him and his family. Harry should be able to empathize. Their children receive the same threats. With some hesitancy, she acknowledged that he might have a point. However, at the same time, it sometimes amazed her that thirteen years later, they were still talking about Death Eaters. It had a lot to do with the Wizengamots' inaction, and how it led to the Death Eaters managing to regroup, rallying behind the Lestrange brothers and other survivors of Voldemort's inner circle. Attacks and murders started again not long after the final battle, disorganized initially, but as time passed and they continued to evade capture or death, their confidence and recklessness had grown. Azkaban escapes became a common occurrence again once the Dementors had been banished. The Ministry insisted they had full control of the situation and some people, desperate to believe in something after so much misery, believed them. And when the skirmishes between the partly inexperienced Aurors and the Death Eaters began to increase in both frequency and severity, the Ministry started suppressing the news, just like before. However, unlike before, the journalists were bolder. And just when the cries of the people rose to a crescendo, all hell broke loose at Malfoy Manor on the first Christmas after the Battle of Hogwarts. Lucius Malfoy had just enough time to call in the oars before he died protecting his family. The ensuing battle had been such a deadly affair that once the dust settled and everyone retreated, everything stopped. The weakened Death Eaters retreated and went into hiding, and again the opportunity for the oars to give chase had come. Shacklebolt had begged the Wizengamot's permission to hunt them down and snuff them out once and for all, but was overruled in favor of keeping guard of the peace that they had obtained in their victory. It took one year after the battle at Malfoy Manor for the attacks to start again. This time, the Wizengamot finally decided to listen to Shacklebolt, who had already quit, and created a task force to investigate the whereabouts of Death Eaters and coordinate with the Aura Department to shut down each of them. The same task force Draco Malfoy now led. In Hermione's opinion, the action came too late. The Death Eaters were more organized than ever, their violence louder even in the silence. Their message of hate remained the same. They sought to continue Voldemort's mission of protecting the purity of blood from those deemed unworthy. Bigotry remained the silent poison of the wizarding world. But as the years passed, the Death Eaters had gotten smarter, shifting their missives to include anti-ministry rhetoric, which drew interest from those who had been neutral during the war and still lost everything. Those that, despite the economic boom after the war and the restoration of society, no longer trusted the Ministry. And there were plenty. Time could heal some wounds, but not all. Memories were not so easily forgotten, even through the passage of time. 
Memories were unique. The more powerful they were, the harder they imprinted themselves on someone's soul. And the memories of the Ministry's past failings were etched next to the names of those that they had lost, those who were broken, and those who were still struggling. Kingsley cleared his throat. A little bird told me that they offered you a position to lead the investigation department. It was still funny how much Kingsley knew about the happenings at the Ministry. Most times he knew more than she did. Hermione found herself interested to know the identity of his source. It seems they are trying to fast-track you up to the magical law enforcement ladder. So that had been the position they were offering. Hermione scoffed. I never looked. I just declined. At that, Kingsley chuckled, shaking his head, humored by the stubbornness that he knew all too well. She rolled her eyes with a small smile on her face. I was only just beginning to make the transition between the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures and into magical law enforcement when I quit. Not only am I not qualified, I am also not interested. Kingsley side-eyed her in that way of his. I'm fairly certain you're more qualified than anyone in that department. You don't need experience to lead, Hermione. I think the current state of the Ministry can attest to that. You could always go back to change that. She gave a challenging look of her own, as the suggestion she had only ever thought about in privacy of her own mind was laid out before she could rein it back in. There are people who still support you. I still support you. Harry does, too. You could restore order. Percy is looking up old laws that would restore power to the minister. There's always a way. Initially, he didn't respond, finishing the last bit of his licorice wand. I quite like my bees. Who says you can't have both? Kingsley considered her words. What about you, Hermione? What about me? You would make an excellent minister for magic one day, should you ever decide to return. I've always thought that about you, and it has very little to do with your brilliance. It has always been about your moral code, your compassion, and your determination to make things right. He paused as if choosing his words wisely. I understand your reasons for leaving, just as you have always been understanding of mine. She glanced at him skeptically. I feel there is a but coming. Kingsley laughed to himself, shoulders shaking with humor. Nothing ever gets past you, does it? Your observation skills are as keen as ever. He shook his head as if answering his own question. I do wonder if your hesitance to return has little to do with the powers that be, and more to do with fear of, perhaps, a second failure. When she said nothing in response, only stared out in the distance, listening, he reached over and tapped her arm on the chair with his large hand in an act of attempted comfort. It's okay to be afraid, Hermione. You know what isn't okay. Letting that fear stop you. Hermione reflected on his words for several long minutes. I don't consider my time at the Ministry, or even what happened that led me to quit, as a failure. I have zero regrets, both about leaving or failing to return. I think what happened gave me the perspective I needed to sort my priorities and acknowledge the truth that I am just as human as everyone else. It allowed me to set my own course and help people who need it along the way, which is what I do now at the hospital. Have you figured out where you're going yet? She thought about her current commitments ruminating over the offer she hadn't humored in the case Theo seemed to so keen on her accepting. For the first time in a long time that she could recall, Hermione had no idea where she was going. No, but if I'm lucky, maybe I'll know where I'm going when I get there. Everything must have a beginning, and that beginning must be linked to something that went before. Mary Shelley Chapter 2. Pay It Forward March 16, 2011 Hermione's father was a quiet, pragmatic man. 
His love of whiskey, jazz music, and painting were quite out of character for his conservative nature. Before Hogwarts' representative had given Hermione the letter that would alter the course of her life, she spent her early evenings watching her dad work on his labor of love—his craft. When they arrived home after her parents finished at the office, he would change into dungarees, pour himself a finger of whiskey, and retreat to his art room while her mom prepared dinner for her Julia Child's cookbook, substituting ingredients she couldn't be bothered with. Her phone was always pressed to her ear as she chatted away with friends near and far. Her laughter shook the spiraled phone cord that stretched across the kitchen. Hermione, who spent her afternoons after school completing assignments in her parents' dental practice while the receptionist looked on and praised her brilliance, would change into comfortable clothes and sit with her feet tucked under her in the armchair, always with a book of some sort. Her dad would ask about her day as it pertained to her grades and assignments, and let her prattle on while he prepared his paints and provided the appropriate feedback. Hermione knew that conversation was over when he sipped his drink for the first time, turned on the old record player he'd had since university, and picked up his brush to work on his latest creation. Her father had never taken a single lesson, and it showed. His work was terrible, but he never cared, and neither did she. What kept Hermione coming back was something that happened at the strangest of times. It had nothing to do with the whiskey. She wasn't old enough to drink it anyway. Nothing to do with the music. She didn't like jazz in the same way she didn't like Celestina Warbeck. As a child, Hermione found the music old, incomprehensible, and not so melodic. And she wasn't a skilled painter, but sometimes, when her dad was absorbed in the murky undertones of a piano as the saxophone and singer soothed his soul, sipping that glass of amber liquor, he would make broad strokes with his paintbrush and talk. Not about anything in particular, just whatever came to mind. Unless a football game was on, her dad was a quiet and thoughtful man, not social by any means, with only a few close friends. Always thinking and enjoying the quiet in his own mind until he was ready to interact with the rest of the world, it was difficult to get to know him. So, it was the little moments of openness that stuck with Hermione over the years. She kept them in her heart and leveraged them as part of her determined efforts during the long Horcrux hunt. It was also in those moments when she felt like she knew her dad best. He mostly gave advice about life. Stay true to yourself. Don't ever stop learning and growing. Things she would remember for years. Create certainty, but leave room for unexpected. He told stories she'd never heard about her grandparents who had died before she was born. You have my mother's hair and my father's spirit. He told her stories about her mom and stories about while they were dating. Your mother sat next to me in school and talked incessantly. I only kissed her the first time to shut her up. He sometimes told her stories of herself from before she could remember. When you were upset, all the cabinet doors would open and shut. I think we knew then that you were special. But on the very rare occasions, he talked about nothing that ended up being something. Love is never what we expect it to be. She remembered it from one day during summer holiday, while Billy Holiday played on the record player. It's bizarre, enigmatic, and doesn't make sense to anyone. Why do you think so many people write songs on the subject? change their lives for it. Now that her parents were retired, and their lucrative practice was sold, her dad still painted and listened to jazz on the same record player when they weren't traveling. But he no longer showed bits of himself to her, no longer told her stories, not like he once had. It was yet another thing that time and the ever-growing distance between Hermione and her parents had changed, but his silence hadn't stopped her from sitting with him during her visits, hadn't stopped her from watching him like she once had with a book on her lap as she listened to the music she still didn't care for as an adult. It didn't stop her from waiting for another opportunity to see him. 
Her father's skills had improved greatly now that he had more time to devote to his craft, and had actually begun taking classes. His style was a clean mix of abstract, geometric, layered designs that he'd just started showing their friends instead of binning. He'd even sold one or two. He'd never offered one of his paintings, and she never asked. Just like all the others, the painting session that day ended with her mother calling them for dinner. Hermione ate with them once every few weeks in an attempt to keep her family from completely crumbling at her feet. She spent her time inwardly cringing from the tense smiles aimed at her, wondering just how they'd gotten to that point. Well, actually, she knew. It started when she returned their memories and tearfully tried to explain everything, including why they were in Australia, of all places. While they understood the reason for the choice she made and forgave her, they chose to stay in Australia. Their only form of communication was monthly phone calls, where they would politely ask her to visit and Hermione would decline. She knew they didn't mean it. They did, however, return six years ago to help her sort through her own crisis, but the damage had long since been done. The divide between them was too great. Still, Hermione was diligent and kept trying, carrying the hope that one day she would finish construction on that bridge that would close the distance between them. Until then, Hermione joined her parents for a meal of roasted chicken and boiled cabbage that she'd grown in her garden. Most of the time, her mother wasn't the best cook. She hated following recipes and sometimes left out vital ingredients. Sometimes her alterations worked, but often, like tonight, they didn't. Her dad was used to it. His palate had adjusted over the years, so he ate his dry chicken and overcooked cabbage without complaint. Hermione followed suit like a dutiful daughter, but made sure to leave plenty of room for dessert. That was where her mother excelled, and Hermione was keen on her bread-and-butter pudding. "'Next time you come for dinner,' her mother said as they ate, "'make sure you pick a day when Ron can come with you. He's such a sweet young man, and quite amusing.' She chuckled in a motherly sort of way that reminded her of Mrs. Weasley when she was thinking about something pleasant. I think he loves my desserts just as much as you. And that was the subject of their biggest disagreement to date. Mom, Hermione groaned while cutting into her chicken, we're just friends. And that was all they would ever be. She and Ron had reached the point where they had been apart longer than they had been together, yet her mother still hadn't let it go. In truth, neither had Ron, which complicated matters further as their lives were heavily entwined. He was her best friend, his family was like her own, and therefore he would always be an important part of her life, just not in the way he wanted. It had taken three years for Hermione to realize that, in addition to the fact that they weren't well-suited and had wildly different interests and opinions on basically everything. Ron wanted her in a box that she couldn't fit in, a box where he would have to take out the parts that he loved most about her and leave the rest. He was traditional. He wanted her to take on those roles that she had no interest in. And she wanted a partner, not a project. Hermione grew tired of apologizing for who she was and stifling herself to avoid arguments. Even with the knowledge that no relationship was perfect, Hermione had a nagging feeling that she was settling rather than compromising. And it ate at her. It ate at her until she stopped trying to force herself to fight for something that she didn't actually want in the end. I know, but he was so good for you. Hermione didn't agree. When she glanced over at her father, who continued chewing while pretending to be engaged, she swore she saw just the hint of his disagreement, too. It was hard to tell, but for the purpose of her ongoing efforts to keep the peace, Hermione changed the subject. How was Morocco? She continued eating as she listened to her mother tell stories of their trip while her father provided the occasional comment that usually involved correcting her mild exaggerations, with a fond look on his face. It was her mother's way, after all. 
Her mother had always been sharp and lively, even more so now that she was older. She talked with her hands, and though she appeared wrapped up in her stories, her mother always kept an eye out for their reactions. "'We're going to Greece in early June. We're going to stay by the water.' They traveled a lot now that they had time and financial freedom. They always went somewhere warm by the water because years in Australia had spoiled them for it. "'That sounds lovely.' Her mom served her dad another helping of chicken. "'When was the last time you took a vacation?' Hermione scratched her temple with the nail of her forefinger. "'I went to Madrid with a few friends.' "'Over three years ago, before Ginny was too far along with Lily to travel.' "'That's nice,' her father nodded as he took a drink of water. "'Traveling is good for your health.' And he left it at that. Dinner progressed, and Hermione forced a smile in their stilted attempts at making conversation, not knowing what they could discuss and what had been deemed off-limits. It felt like she was sharing a meal with strangers.' chatting about bland, predictable topics like the weather, her mum's wine-tasting event with her friends the next day, her dad's growing interest in bird-watching, and Hermione's plans for expanding a garden her parents still hadn't been to her house to see. And though she hated the distance, it was better than the alternative of not seeing them at all. At least, that was what she told herself as she grinned and bore the awkwardness, all while knowing and accepting her own fault in the breakdown. As the only witch in their family, her parents had always had a certain level of trust in her, Trust that she wouldn't use magic to cheat the system, to solve every little problem, or hurt those with no way to fight back, no matter if that pain was caused by her wand or her actions. And she had irreparably broken that trust when she'd altered their memories. They had forgiven her, but therapy had taught her that forgiveness wasn't the end of the process. It was the beginning of a new relationship, which continued to be shaped by the very actions that had needed forgiving in the first place. Whenever she got subtle hints of their wariness, it was a harsh reminder of the road that she was on towards reconciliation. Humility was something she was still working on, and not letting her own guilt blind her to the progress she had made. Sometimes, when it returned with a vengeance, all Hermione could think about was how they'd never gotten back to where they once were. How it would always be a terrible thing between them, like a bacterium infecting their plants that only made its presence known with yellowing leaves and wilt. But then she had to remind herself what she did when that happened— the extra care she had to take with each plant, the work she had to put in, and how in the end her garden was healthier for it, more resilient. She had to utilize that same care with her parents. Hermione was laying the groundwork with each dinner, each visit, and every interaction. No matter how the distance made her feel, she knew she had to be as patient with them as she was with her garden, knew that she had to keep coming for weekday dinners, keep offering yields from her garden for her mom to experiment with, and keep watching her dad paint and listen to jazz music. She had to keep the gates of communication open so they could come in, should they choose. Maybe, one day, they would come in and stay a while. Until then, she would keep working. When dinner concluded, Hermione helped her mother with the dishes while her dad wiped down the countertops and put away the extras. He finished first and gave her mom a quick kiss and Hermione a quick hug before disappearing into the sitting room to watch a bit of telly. With the sound of a football match as the background music, they worked together, Hermione washing and her mom organizing each dish in the dishwasher that she had to have, but only used it for drying. "'Your dad is concerned for you,' her mom said with an almost conspiratorial whisper as she regrouped the forks together. "'He doesn't think it's good that you're alone so far out in the country.' She furrowed her brows. "'Her dad? Concerned? She couldn't tell.' "'I like the place,' Hermione shrugged. "'I can flew or apparate anywhere I need to go.' Her mother pulled a face, much like she always did when she used wizarding terminology. "'Why can't you opt for a place closer to the city, where there are plenty of options in Surrey?' 
You would be closer to us if anything should happen. It would ease his worries. My vegetable patch wouldn't fit. Her parents would understand that if they visited, but she bit her tongue on the matter. Hermione lived in a cottage too large for one person on land she protected under wards. The closest wizarding town was Godric's Hollow, and it wasn't close at all. There was not a neighbor in sight. Her house had been quite dilapidated when the realtor reluctantly showed it to her, but there was charm and potential that she loved at first sight. She basically paid for the land and got the house free. The work needed was extensive. Her parents thought the purchase was foolish, as she'd just quit her job in the ministry, but Hermione converted half of her Gringotts account— with her extensive savings from years of being thrifty and leftover war compensation funds, into pounds and used it to pay off the loan and the contractors for their work. In truth, she could have done it with magic, but watching their daily progress gave her something to focus on. They tore out unseen rot and carefully carved away the original stone, rebuilding it back to the point where the outside looked the same, but the inside was all new. It was a metaphor she couldn't ignore. The vegetable patch was originally a therapy assignment she'd started not long after construction finished to occupy her time and manage her stress. Her house was not yet furnished when Neville came by with a few young plants as a gift, and an idea was born. Pretty soon, he was coming over weekly to show her how to build garden boxes, cultivate the land, what to plant, and where to plant it. She started reading books, planning, growing. It gave her purpose. After her first harvest, she and Neville sat in the pasture past her garden and gorged themselves on unwashed tomatoes, and when she shed cathartic tears, he didn't judge her. He just let her cry and reminded her that this was the first harvest of many more to come. Hermione's house meant more to her than she could convey, and she hated that her parents didn't understand. So she kept washing dishes, forearm deep in warm, sudsy water, when her mother revisited the topic Hermione thought she had properly circumvented. "'I meant what I said about Ron,' You should bring him when you come next time. More than that, you should reconsider him. Just because she was trying to mend the gap didn't mean she would stifle herself on that particular topic. You've made your opinion about that quite clear over the last six years. And I'll keep saying it until you listen. You won't find anyone better, not with that sort of life that you live. It wasn't said to be offensive or hurtful. It was just a fact. Your work is very involved, Hermione. No man, wizard or not, will understand your level of commitment to your patience like he does. Hermione almost laughed, but passed over the plate she just washed instead before starting on the cups. Ron had just gotten to the point in his life where he'd found his own footing outside of his large and now distinguished family. But because he'd had to share so much of his younger years, he never liked sharing her. He was always insecure about his rank and role in her life. Now that they were broken up and he was working with George to develop new products for the ever-expanding joke shop, and now that she was no longer on track to become the youngest minister for magic, he seemed more settled around her, not as irritated when people sought her out over him. Now that she wasn't so busy or important, Ron wanted to try again as though her schedule had been the proximate cause of their breakup from the start. It wasn't. Rather than provide her mother with a detailed character analysis on Ron— Hermione opted for a response that would throw herself into a deeper pit, but at least it would be a different one. "'You're right. My commitment is to my work. In fact, I'm so committed that I am not looking for anything right now.' "'You're not getting any younger.' Hermione turned her head, eyes narrowed in calculation. Her mother was just under thirty when Hermione was born. Her parents had wanted to be established in their careers first. Pot, meat, kettle. "'I believe you wanted to have a career first. I'm just like you in that respect. 
because her mother would never admit that Hermione was right. She continued on without responding to that factual statement. "'While I love Harry's children, I would like to have my own grandchildren at some point.' "'I'll have to meet the right person for that.' Little did her mom know that with the way Theo was trying to convince her to take on a potential five-year contract, that didn't seem likely. "'You already have!' Hermione rolled her eyes. Her mother had always been very clever at guiding a conversation in the direction of her choosing. She passed her the final cup to rinse. "'We'll have to agree to disagree.' "'For now!' They tabled the conversation for another day, and, once her mom finished arranging everything, she shut the dishwasher. Hermione drained the sink— wiping it with a dish towel until the water was completely gone. While she wrung out the wet cloth, her mother put on the electric kettle for tea. Hermione had brought ginger tea from her own collection after her mom complained of a stomach ache during their phone call last night. She went to sit at the table, and her mother joined her after drying her hands and pouring the boiling water into the teapot to steep. Tea first, dessert second. Her mother looked over her shoulder at the tea kettle before she stiffly asked, "'How are you?' Mentally was the unspoken word at the end of her question. Trust issues aside, she was still her mother. And as a mother, by right, she was always worried. Her mom was the daughter of a doctor and a dentist herself, so while mental health wasn't exactly a taboo subject, it was one that she approached with caution. Not that it mattered. It always put Hermione on edge regardless. It was just another one of those sore topics neither of them wanted to discuss because of the bad memories that it evoked in both of them. She kept her response simple. I'm fine. You're not working too hard, are you? No, Mum. I'm currently between patients. Her last was an Auror who, thanks to experimental treatment, had been revived after being Death Eater ambushed early last year. It was a four-month assignment where she worked one-on-one to get him not only physically and mentally healthy, but accustomed to his new normal with the family that had never given up on him. Last week, she'd transitioned him to the care of another healer, who would do routine follow-ups, alerting Hermione only if needed. Good. Silence fell between them as her dad's complaints over the game filtered in from the sitting room. Arsenal must have been losing again. For a brief moment, she smirked, reminded of Ron and his love for the always losing cannons. The kettle whistled, and when her mother went to make tea for them both, Hermione rested her hand on her arm. Let it steep longer with the ginger root, another ten minutes or so. With a nod, her mum continued with their conversation. You're making sure you eat, right? Hermione sighed. I am. And sleeping? Eight hours a night. She paused and then said, I'm not going to fall apart, Mom. Not again. At the memory, Hermione visibly winced, instantly agitated. In truth, she didn't care for any reminder of what had happened, not that she could remember it anyway. Now she had to contend with the questions and looks, the concern and the worries, not just from her mother, but from those closest to her as well. The entire incident felt like a dream, an encounter that had happened to someone else, not her. Hermione thought she was stronger, thought she could push herself to the brink and still maintain control. She thought herself invincible when, in fact, she was only human. The lesson she had learned had been humbling. "'I know you won't. You've been doing well.' Her mother started to reach for her hand, resting on the table, but faltered, placing her hand on top of the other. Hermione thought about completing the action and reaching for her— but hesitation was still current best friend. So she didn't. You look like you've lost weight. I haven't. Okay, but I still worry, Hermione. Frustration, mainly at herself, slipped past her lips. During a moment, she'd left herself unguarded. I'm fine, she said curtly. 
She regretted it when her mother's face darkened, and she straightened in her chair. Immediately chastened, Hermione sighed. "'I'm sorry. I just—' Her mother held up a hand. "'I pushed too hard.' "'It's not that, Mom,' she said in a barely a whisper as she looked down at the table. "'Thank you for your concern. Everything is fine. I'm taking care of myself.' "'Are you still attending therapy sessions?' "'As needed, and I haven't needed to in a while.' A moment of silence passed before she nodded, accepting Hermione's answer. Then her mother's line of questioning shifted. And the threats? Because one of their terms had been full disclosure, her parents knew all about them. There was another one this past week. She didn't want to detail everything that had happened, but she knew she had to tell her mother something. It was an escalation from their normal methods. Worry etched its way across her face. And the werewolf? Should we be concerned? While Hermione had told them about Greyback and the personal threat he posed, she hadn't divulged everything, especially not about the periodic wolf howls she heard on the full moon near her home. No one knew about those. She shook the thought from her head. No, the Ministry is handling it. Last I remembered, you didn't trust them. As a matter of fact, she didn't, but Hermione trusted herself and her own skills. She'd had a layer of wards over her parents' house that made it practically impenetrable. And should anything less than human manage to penetrate them, she would be alerted immediately. The same wards existed over her own home and surrounding land. It was one of the reasons she didn't worry as much as she probably should. Satisfied, her mother visibly relaxed and gave a sarcastic chuckle. Well, if anything changes and our lives are being threatened, be sure to let us know before you modify our memories. It was meant to be a joke. Hermione knew that. Just an attempt at making light of a tense situation— but damn if it didn't burn. March 18th, 2011 Brewing Wolfsbane was a complicated task, both draining and tedious. The ingredients were still not cheap or easily accessible, but Hermione brewed batch after batch each month for Padma's patients, and any wolf that came into her clinic in the alternative healing department seeking the potion. Hermione had not played any part in passing the pro-werewolf laws that made it a crime to discriminate against them for any reason— However, the Wizengamot had dragged her into the spectacle when they signed it into law. Additionally, they'd invited the media and Andromeda, who had been told to bring Teddy, as the son of a werewolf, for the occasion. Like a prop, they had all been there to make the powers that be look good, and they needed her to do that. They had taken great care to make certain and spin the story to make it look as if the law had only been made possible by the efforts of the brilliant war hero, champion of the people, beast, beings alike, Hermione Granger. Despite the fact that there had been an entire team that had worked tirelessly on getting the laws passed, no, she had been the one to take the stage, front and center, and smile for the cameras. Hermione shook hands with the minister and chief warlock Tiberius McLagan, played her role, and pretended not to feel guilty about it pretended that no one sneered at her back. Not that it mattered. Laws, even ones as clear as pro-werewolf articles, were easy to circumvent with moderate effort. Not to mention, the Ministry made them extremely hard to enforce. Unless explicit proof was provided, discrimination accusations were often deemed hearsay and speculation, and thus damaging to someone's reputation. It was something that kept a lot of the cases out of the ears of the Wizengamot as a whole, and in their small committees where they either settled or the case was dropped. So instead of evicting a person because of their status and registration, they could be evicted for contamination concerns, or because they didn't have a regular source of wolfsbane. Quietly, the Wizengamot hadn't passed the only beneficial aspect of the law. 
which would have made the ministry responsible for providing Wolfsbane to all lycanthropes for free. That would have been too right, made things too easy for people treated as subhuman. And that was why Hermione brewed as much as she could each month. Each vial truly made a difference. Unlike the fake laws, pretend tolerance, and false smiles for the media they tried to control, brewing was the real solution. In the real work, it had never been her favorite thing to do, but it was the right thing and something she excelled at. Hermione would do more if she could, but Padma's patients, who consisted of newly bitten long-term werewolves and defects from the grayback side, were appreciative all the same. They weren't answering the call of the Death Eaters who promised a better life under their regime, and with the potion, they were able to work and live normally as part of society, which was all that mattered. "'The full moon is tomorrow,' Padma said, giving her a long look before she worked to prepare for her next group, waving her wand to neutralize the scent of other wolves from the air. They were especially sensitive in the days before the full moon. "'Do you want someone to stay?' Hermione counted the leftovers. She usually made forty— Today there were thirty left, and Padma had two more group sessions of no more than six wolves in each, which was right around the normal. "'I'll be home by moonrise. Besides, my wards are strong.' "'I know all of that, but if you want company, I can stay.' Then her brown eyes lit up. "'You can help me pick flowers for the wedding!' She could think of an entire list of things she wanted to do more. Hermione chuckled at Padma's rare show of blatant enthusiasm. I have a vegetable garden and a working knowledge of flowers as they pertain to pollinating, but I am no expert outside of what's aesthetically pleasing. I know, but Neville is busy with his students. Pravardi has wild ideas, and Cho will be busy. And Blaze? He's your fiancé, after all. Padma gave her a long look. Blaze Sabini? Picking floral arrangements? Willingly? She started laughing, and unable to stop herself, Hermione joined in. She had a point. The mental image of a bewildered Blaze deciding between lilacs, amaryllis, and carnations was hilarious. But he's been threatening elopement so often I feel this would drive him over the edge. Hermione snorted. Fear of your grandmother will keep him in line. She has a bat bogey hex that makes Ginny's looks amateurish. They both laughed and returned to their tasks, dropping into silence to focus on what they were doing. But soon Hermione disrupted it. Are you coming tonight? Every other Friday, they gathered at her house, which is only. Yes, Pavardi too. Then she remembered. Oh, is it okay if I bring Cho? Hermione didn't feel one way or the other about Cho Chang, but she was Padma's best friend and was slowly becoming a regular at their events, much to Pansy's annoyance. That's fine. Susan popped her head into the room, looking harried, yet perfectly composed. Pad, oh, Hermione, you're here. Great. I know you're not floating this week, but I need some help with a patient. Before either could ask, she continued, Orin Task Force versus Death Eaters in a skirmish in Chesterfield. One dead, one missing, two critical, and six injured. There was a pause. Then they both sprang into action, but Padma stopped herself. I have a group session in fifteen minutes. Hermione summoned her trusty beaded bag. I can't leave a room full of werewolves together the night before a full moon for any length of time. No, she absolutely could not. A fight would likely break out. Padma unclipped her potions holster and put it around Hermione's waist before she turned to Susan. Any wolf bites? No. Hermione and Padma exchanged equally relieved looks. Greyback hadn't been set free. Yet. While not the full moon, there was always an alarming rise in the number of people bitten either just before or after, almost as if it were on purpose. Hermione pulled out her vial of Dittany. Is Harry out there? 
No, he wasn't there, but I suppose he'll be around soon, along with Malfoy. The fatality was a task force member. She paused in her efforts to find all of the potions she carried in her bag. Killing curse? Yes, and the most critical is a dagger wound laced with poison. The same one you cured Molly Weasley from. Hermione's eyes widened, then doubled her efforts, snatching her wand while on the move. She barely said goodbye to Padma before hurrying out with Susan, who walked as she talked. It's been thirty minutes since he was stabbed. I called someone from plant poisoning up to assist. Good move, but that was to be expected. Susan was an excellent planner. They brought the blade in, in case it's not the poison they've been using. Do you have the antidote? Hermione handed Susan her bag, while she put her hair up into a messy bun. One vial, but there's more in my office, if you don't mind. Of course. Anything else I need to know? He's young. Very young, as it turned out. Barely out of Hogwarts and not so trained. It was yet another story of the life of an underfunded Aura's office and task force team. He was tall, broad, blonde, and close to death. Hermione couldn't tell which posed more of a threat, the dagger wound or the poison. That was about as far as she got when she shed her sweater, so she wouldn't ruin another one with blood, and got to work. Hermione, who didn't wear a uniform or a badge, had no time for names or introductions. The other Aurors in the room must have recognized her from both her own fame and her lunch visits with Harry, because no one stopped her. Also likely because the injured wizard was frothing at the mouth, bleeding from a chest wound, and hallucinating about a dead relative. The poison had a firm grip. It took two uninjured Aurors and a Mediwitch, and Hermione literally sitting on his legs to hold him down long enough for Susan, who had returned just in time, to get the first round of antidote down his throat. Then something for pain. Then blood replenishing. Then dreamless sleep. He would need it. It wasn't long before she had his bloody robes torn open and blood on her gloved hands. Susan followed her every move, making expert seals with her wand as Hermione carefully dripped Dittany into the wound, closing as much of it as she could. They worked in silence, so familiar with each other that Hermione knew what Susan would do and what she needed long before she could utter a request, and vice versa. Hermione felt the cooling sensation tingle her skin, vanishing the sweat from her brow. Thanks. Any time. Susan returned to her task, remaining silent until the gashes were closed. He would have a scar, but he wouldn't die from the wound. The poison, on the other hand. It was too soon to tell. I'll run a few diagnostic charms for any internal damage. Hermione stood back while she worked, removing her gloves and using her wand to cleanse the patient's body of blood and dirt. Susan finished her charms and reached for the enchanted parchment with the results. She winced, but if Hermione knew anything about the witch, it was that Susan wasn't as much of a pessimist as she should have been, given all the other relatives she'd lost to Voldemort. The poison's pretty advanced, but the dagger missed everything vital. If we can keep him stable through the twelve antidote rounds, he should live. A brunette midi-witch peeked in and looked at Hermione. Harry Potter would like a status update on this patient. Critical, but stable. The witch turned her attention to Susan. Both Harry and the task force leader would like to speak to you about the deceased task force member. They need to inform his family. Task force leader? That seemed to be a very odd way to address Draco Malfoy, given the informal way she had addressed Harry. Susan placed the charm parchment on the table and sighed. Right, of course. The excitement of their success with one patient quickly turned into a reminder of a failure and loss of life. There was nothing she could have done, but still, it never got easier. When she passed, Hermione rested a stable hand on her shoulder, giving her a look that conveyed her concern. Susan nodded in return. See you tonight, yeah? The witch appeared to think about it. Whose turn is it to bartend? 
If it's Pansy, hell no. She's heavy-handed, and I like to not be miserable for the next week. Hermione burst out laughing, tossing her head back. She had a point. No, it's Ginny's turn. It showed every bit of her weariness from an obviously long day, but Susan smirked. I'll be late, but I'll be there. Ginny had three kids under the age of seven, so in essence, she had three jobs. Her first was mum, wife, short-order cook, and peacekeeper. The four positions were intertwined and paid exactly the same, absolutely nothing. Her second was Quidditch reporter, that paid exceedingly well, and her last but second most important job was barmaid. And like an excellent barmaid, Ginny had a stiff and suspiciously fruity drink waiting for Hermione when she popped home after leaving the unexpected and full day of patience and charting at St. Mungo's. Oh, thank goodness! Without uttering a greeting, she drank it in three gulps, noting with a little fear in her heart that the liquor that hadn't burned like it should, which didn't bode well for the rest of her evening, or her morning tomorrow. She hadn't brewed any hangover potion in months. But that didn't stop Hermione from placing the empty glass down and nodding for another. It was their Friday night ritual, one that had begun out of necessity for Ginny, who needed a few hours away from her kids for the sake of her sanity. Harry kept them on Friday nights, and she kept them on Saturdays when he wanted to go out with his mates. Over the years, their ritual had grown, expanded. Now it included a few extra people, like Luna, when she wasn't traveling the world for work, Daphne, Padma, Susan, and Parvati, when they weren't busy, and Pansy, but only when she promised to play nice with her latest addition, Cho. Pansy didn't come often. That bad? Hermione sat on the bar stool, placing her elbows on the white granite, head bowed in her hands. I went to drop off Wolfsbane and ended up helting out after the ambush. Ah, Harry told me about that. One dead and one missing. Stan Mathers? He was just getting home from breaking the news to his parents when I was preparing to come here. He said you saved a young oar who got stabbed with a poison dagger. She nodded. Same potion as the one that damaged your mom's hands. They've managed to fuse it into the blade itself. Nasty bit of magic. Unnatural. He almost died. Hermione frowned. Susan said Malfoy took it to the Department of Mysteries for them to run tests on it. I was too busy saving the Aurora's life. A thought passed. I don't even remember his name. Alan Cottleback. When Hermione eyed her, Ginny shrugged. Her answer the same for everything that concerned Aurora business. Harry told me. Also told me to say thank you. I was doing my job. On your holiday. Hermione shrugged and accepted the drink Ginny offered. Did you miss the dinner with your parents? It was a brave question. Ginny knew exactly how little Hermione wanted to discuss her parents. And yet, she brought them up whenever the opportunity arose. Internally grimacing, Hermione swallowed her drink down in quick, burning gulps without uttering a response. Now her best friend was more concerned. Hermione, despite having a bar under her island, had never been a heavy drinker. It was a matter of control, obviously, that kept her from indulging outside the single glass of wine she allowed herself per day. Tonight, though, she needed the reprieve. I didn't, she confessed with a sigh. We had dinner night before last, but it didn't go very well either. So, like normal, then, Ginny reached across the bar and patted her on the top of her lowered head in a dry, compassionate sort of way that made Hermione chuckle, despite how she felt. Hermione launched into a run-through of the visit overall, spending extra time on the conversation with her mum that had stayed with her since tea, and the excuse she made to leave before dessert. She played it on repeat in her mind like a scratched record. By the time she finished, Ginny's face had twisted into a cringe and her cheeks were pinker than they had been. You definitely need another. 
Then she dipped out of sight behind the island and re-emerged with a fresh bottle of Ogden's. She walked to Hermione's vintage refrigerator and returned with several small containers of freshly squeezed juices, an ice tray, and maraschino cherries before beginning her complicated mixing process that Hermione watched, but could never ever comprehend. Having learned Molly's love for cooking over the years, Ginny was at home in any kitchen and spent enough time inside them to know what Hermione might need, which was why she'd helped with the layout and didn't say much whenever she rearranged everything during moments of stress. Everything from the stone flag flooring, white walls, ceiling lights, islands granite that didn't match the treated wood on the rest of the countertops, and distressed wood beams that ran into the sitting room was all Jenny's idea. Hermione couldn't even take the credit for the sage green cabinets, the open shelves mixed with cabinets that ran along the wall where the stove was, or the location of the butler's sink beneath the window that overlooked her garden and the land beyond as that had been Pansy's doing. The only thing she could say that was all her own idea was the fact that the windowsill was lined with the pots of her regularly used herbs. Honestly, it didn't matter. The space suited Hermione, which was great because when she wasn't brewing potions, working through her infinite reading list, working with her patients, or gardening, she was cooking. After a few small fires and failures, she'd found a new hobby. On to a different topic. Hermione rested her elbow on the table and plunked her chin in her hand. How was your day? Jenny's answer was a sarcastic glance, followed by an amused chuckle. Let's just say I'm happy it's Friday. Before I left, Lily bit James because he kept putting his hands in her face after she told him to stop. Al still hates nursery school and is already upset about returning on Monday, but no tears, just pouting. All in all, there were a lot of tears and hurt feelings happening at my house right now, she grinned. Harry's thriving. Or crying with them. Fun times. Her mouth quirked into a fond smile that told Hermione that, chaos and all, Ginny wouldn't have it any other way. Yes, it is. After shaking everything in the ice-filled tumbler one last time, she flashed a smile that instantly told Hermione that the redhead wanted something. Any plans tomorrow? No. She already knew why Ginny was asking. I'll probably spend the day gardening with Al. Thanks, she grinned in response. I'll bring him by in the morning. Truthfully, they didn't need to ask, but every other week one of them would, and Hermione let them. At five, Albus was the shyest of the three Potter kids, scared of anything too large, and had a tendency to melt into the background when mixed in with his more boisterous, chaos-inspiring siblings, and cousins. Even though he was anxious to the point of tears around strange adults, in small, controlled environments, Al thrived. Harry and Ginny had realized, after daily tantrums and tears, that the sensory overload of his siblings exhausted him. So they asked her to keep him every other Saturday, just so he could get away, while they worked at home to give him the peace he needed between visits. He seemed happier during his visits, more inclined to talk, laugh, joke, and ask an array of random questions while he played with the chickens or helped pull weeds. Al was an excellent weed puller. He enjoyed the quiet of the open pasture behind her gate and the walks they took on sunny days each time venturing further from the house and closer to the forest he feared. One day, they would make it. One day, he would make it to the edge of the forest and realize there was nothing to fear. Hermione would be right there, holding his hand when he decided to take his first steps in, when he stopped being afraid. "'Where's Luna?' Hermione asked. Ginny poured the mixture into the glass and pushed it towards her. "'Argentina. I thought she was supposed to return today. She had an issue with her port key, so she'll be back tomorrow.' Ah, Hermione nodded. And everyone else? Susan already told me she would be late. Pravati should be here soon. 
Padma's running late because she's narrowing down wedding venues with Blaze. She's bringing Cho. Pansy's upstairs deciding if she's going to be a bitch or not while measuring your clawfoot tub. She found one? Yes, she did, Pansy announced from the bottom of the stairs across the sitting room. The room was open to the kitchen, giving her the perfect sight of the drink in Hermione's hand. She gasped dramatically. You chit started without me? Jenny rolled her eyes so hard her head went up in motion. Oh, for fuck's sake. She picked up the metallic shaker, gave it a shake. The sound of ice hitting the metal rang in the quiet room. Then she poured a second glass as Pansy sat on the barstool next to Hermione. Why do we tolerate you? Call it a matter of good taste. Jenny narrowed her eyes. There's a compliment in there somewhere. The true answer to Jenny's question was simple in its complexity. She'd given Pansy a chance. Not as an act of compassion or forgiveness, but rather as a favor to Theo that she almost declined simply because Hermione had never liked Pansy. But they were adults, and she understood that even bullies were humans with the capacity to grow the hell up and become better people for it. But she'd never included Pansy in that thought before, because, at the time, she hadn't spared the witch a single thought in years. Not since she'd shouted for someone to grab Harry so he could be offered to the Voldemort to spare them all. While he'd ended up doing just that, Hermione had principles and a strong sense of justice. But it wasn't stronger than her desire to help someone obviously in need. And Pansy had been in need. The first time Hermione had seen Pansy since war was in St. Mungo's when Theo had called her into his office to examine the battered witch. He'd waited outside, with the clothes off her back. She'd left her arranged marriage to a German wizard from a powerful wizarding family, and was subsequently burned off her family tree, and financially cut off. The black eye, busted lip, and bruises had come from being hexed by her mother. When Hermione had tried to heal her, Pansy had laughed and said, "'No, thank you. I'd like to wear them as a crown. I'm finally the ruler of my own destiny.' The remark had stayed with Hermione for weeks. Months later, when she'd casually mentioned to Theo that she was preparing to finally start designing her house, he'd asked her to hire Pansy, just to give her purpose, focus, and a chance. Pansy had no experience outside of decorating Theo's office, a nasty attitude that was likely a defense mechanism, and she was almost as stubborn as Hermione. But she thought about their initial meeting, the words that had been laced with a strong desire to better herself, and a time not too long before that when Hermione had needed purpose as well. So she had agreed to pay her to design one room, the kitchen. The project had been grueling for them both, due to their massive personality and style clash, but they'd found common ground over the sage green paint, ultimately used on Hermione's cabinets. It tentatively grew from there. Pansy talked about her miserable life under the thumb of her ex-husband's family, while Hermione listened and shared bits of her own struggles, the reason behind her departure from the ministry, and why she'd become a healer. The more Pansy learned about her, the more she stopped making bold, grandiose suggestions, instead switching to favor more those in line with Hermione's simple style. When the project was completed, she caught Pansy blinking back tears of accomplishment, proud of herself for her own capabilities, and like Neville had done when she'd grown her first batch of oblong tomatoes, Hermione rested her head on her shoulder and paid it forward by not judging her. Letting her cry while not speaking a word about it, only celebrating how far she'd come, and how far she would go. Not long after, Hermione suggested Pansy to Hannah Abbott, who had just taken over the leaky cauldron and was in need of updating. She'd agreed, and the business Pansy hadn't planned on having exploded— 
but despite her busy schedule, she'd kept Hermione's house a priority as they slowly worked, and argued, from room to room, turning her cottage into a home. "'Who all is coming? And you better not say Cho fucking Chang!' They remained comically silent. "'Fuck! I'm leaving! I'm certain you can tolerate her for a few hours!' The doubtful glare Ginny received made Hermione wheeze out a laugh. "'I can tolerate a lot of things. The both of you, for starters!' Touché, Ginny grinned. Instead of heading towards the flu, Pansy approached them, rolling her eyes. Padma is marrying one of my closest friends, and Parvati is hilarious. Susan is tolerable, I suppose. I don't know her well enough except to say that, for a Hufflepuff, she has a glorious resting bitch face. Granger and I signed that armistice, and I suppose, Weasley, you've got a certain charm and a talent for hexes that the recovering bitch in me can respect. However, I draw the bloody line at Cho. Recovering? Hermione cocked a brow, which earned her a scowl. She just grinned back. Meanwhile, Ginny pulled out another glass from below and poured her remainder of her shaker into the glass. Ignoring most of Pansy's arguments, she scoffed. I've been married to Harry for ten years. Are you going to call me Weasley forever? Basically. Pansy brought the rim of her glass to her lips, drinking slowly. Oh, and I've just been reminded of why. You make excellent drinks. Parenthood has taught me well, Jenny dramatically curtsied and they all laughed. How was dinner with your parents? Pansy arched an eyebrow. It was a topic they had discussed while breaking down the barriers between them. When Hermione sighed, she and Ginny exchanged pointed looks. Pansy pursed her lips and exhaled. Even though she wasn't the comforting type, not in the least, she managed an awkward pat on Hermione's head. Looks like I'm staying after all. Hermione felt good. Better than good. She felt absolutely splendid. Thanks to a few of Ginny's feel-good concoctions of excellence, both the day and the conversation with her mother were all but a distant memory. Oh, she had no doubt it would return at a later time and place, but she would be better equipped to deal with it then. Not now, when she was splayed on the sofa, body warmed and pliant from alcohol, and her legs stretched out until they reached the empty spot Pansy had just vacated to make them both another drink. Something was different because Ginny had decided it would be an excellent idea for her to catch up with Hermione, and did just that by knocking back three of her mystery drinks rapidly just after the others had arrived. Now she looked as regret-free and happy as Hermione felt, and she smiled lazily at her friend who was currently lost in her own world. Ginny's hips swayed to the soft music coming from the wireless as she waved her arms, eyes closed. Her red hair was freed from its ponytail, moving with her easy shimmies. Susan, who was already pissed and asleep on the floor, was closer than she knew to being precariously stepped on by the dancing witch. Oh well. A slightly flushed pansy returned with her third and Hermione's, well, she'd lost count. However, upon first taste, it didn't seem as strong as the others. It had a bit of a bite, though. It's straight fire whiskey because I couldn't be bothered to make fancy drinks for someone as smashed as you are, love. Her term of endearment alerted Hermione to the state of pansy's sobriety, or lack thereof. When Pansy attempted to elegantly sit down, she missed her landing and lost a bit of her drink to her hands, which made her glare. Damn you, gravity! You fickle bitch! Laughter rang out from Padma and Cho, who were on the two-seater talking about Padma's wedding plans, a common topic at their gathering since she'd gotten engaged to Blaze Zabini at Christmas. She didn't mind. In fact, she was looking forward to their wedding next year in India. Their inebriated giggles were drowned out by Parvati's. She was a bit of a lightweight, 
and nearly bombed after only one of Jenny's mixes, which made her tongue loose and her voice louder than usual. She sat on Hermione's coffee table in black leggings and a bright pink shirt, while facing her sister and close friend, legs folded with her still unfinished first drink in her hand. Conversation continued after their laughter subsided. Hermione listened, quiet and smiling, not catching every joke or sentence because the alcohol had loosened her to the point where she didn't care that Parvati had been sitting on her sled coffee table that looked as if the wood was held together by metal, a table that she and Pansy had argued about for two weeks because even though it didn't fit with the country-modern theme of the space, Hermione loved it. Jenny was bopping along in the corner when Cho asked, "'How many guests have you and Blaze decided on?' Padma, who wore her black hair wavy and down as of light, took a long drink and made a look that spoke a little to how overwhelmed she had been about the overall process, a sentiment she'd expressed to Hermione during their last lunch together. "'It'll be at least a hundred people from my side and my parents' entire village.' "'Loads of family,' Pravati blurted out, extending an arm as if it would quantify the number of guests. "'I'm planning on not being single by then. Merlin, if I hear—' Her face changed as she mocked one of her numerous relatives. "'When are you going to find a good man to marry?' "'One more time. I am going to launch myself at the sun!' While Parvati commiserated on single life, Pansy gave her an insincere air-pat with one hand and sipped her drink with the other. "'There, there,' she drawled like some aristocrat. The fire whiskey dulled Hermione's ability to suppress anything she found remotely funny, so she barked out a loud laugh, then blushed and apologized. Pravati glared at her, but there was no heat in it, especially when she realized something quite important. "'You'll need to find a date, too, Hermione. Good luck with that, mate. Your standards are far higher than mine.' "'And your standards aren't, Pravati?' Cho asked innocently, but there was mischief in her eyes. Susan rolled over onto her back and started snoring, loudly. "'Bless. I'll settle for breathing and reasonably decent hygiene. I don't ask for much.' Pansy rolled her eyes, and Cho agreed. Padma, too. "'Lies!' Jenny yelled over the wireless, but kept dancing like she hadn't said a thing. And while Pravati pouted, everyone laughed because they were familiar with her song and dance. Regardless of what she said, Pravati had standards, and they were not low. In fact, they were probably higher than Hermione's, in a way. She'd never had a steady boyfriend, only a long string of casual flings that ultimately hadn't turned into anything more permanent. The reason why had been solely because she fancied unattainable men, whether physically, emotionally, or both. And when they began to show interest and talk of something more, when they began to chase her rather than the other way around, well, her interest in them practically vanished. Hermione was familiar with the thrill of the hunt, of chasing something she wanted until she caught it, but she'd never known someone to win a race, collect their trophy, look at it, and then toss it in the rubbish quite like Pravati. Over the years, she'd wondered if Parvati had even wanted those unattainable men in the first place, or if she merely liked the idea of them just being out of their reach. But now that she was sauced, and overthinking every little thing, Hermione found herself sipping her fire whiskey and contemplating the idea that, perhaps, Parvati didn't know what she wanted. Or maybe she did, and she was too scared of the additional stress and responsibilities that came along with twinning her life with someone else's. Hermione secretly could relate. Padma had done it so easily in the last six years she'd been with Blaze that Hermione seriously considered flat-out asking her just how she'd built something out of nothing. It couldn't have been easy considering the fact that they had so much against them, right from the start. Yet they fought each battle again and again with a better strategy and a growing resilience. 
There were so many people that doubted they would make it one month, much less a year. Or six. Hermione quietly confessed that she had been a doubter. They were such a bizarre pair, right from the start, both cagey about the details that had led to their coming together. Alcohol, if she had to guess. Hermione liked when things made sense, when they were analyzable, and when they were neither. Padma wasn't as electric as her sister, not nearly as bold or outgoing. She knew how to have fun, but was a bit uptight. Like Hermione, she preferred a good book or a foreign film over going out. They shared a love for hard work and a passion for helping people. Blaze was... Well, he was the sort of person people paid attention to because he never did anything that was expected of him. He was extremely laid-back, charismatic, and open with what didn't matter but private about what did. In fact, no one had any idea they were even dating until some unfortunate soul tried to accost Padma during one of their group outings. She was still trying to calculate how he'd gone from sitting next to Theo to punching some drunken wizard in the face. They'd all been thrown out of the bar in the process. Apparition had been ruled out because his wand was still on the table. Nevertheless, that had been how everyone found out, and also how they all learned that neither of their families approved of the match. Padma's family didn't approve because he wasn't Indian, traditional, or interested in having a large family, something Padma wasn't interested in either. Hermione had expected Blaze's mother to disapprove because of Padma's blood status, but was surprised to learn that it actually stemmed from the simple fact that she wasn't rich. Interesting. But it seemed that the more their families tried to tear them apart, the tighter they held on to the other. They outlasted their disapproval and became stronger for it. Indomitable. Padma had simply blossomed with Blaze at her side, becoming a more confident version of herself, certain of her worth in every part of her life. She supported his career that kept him away at times, and he celebrated each of her successes. On the occasions when she failed, he was still there supporting her, encouraging her, cheering her on in that subtle way of his. Hermione sipped her drink and considered the possibility that she'd have been wrong about them. Perhaps they made sense after all. Who did Blaze pick as his groomsmen? Pansy rolled her eyes at Parvati, who was finishing her first drink and moaning pitifully to herself about her single life. Ginny was doing a strange version of the robot. The music was all wrong for her dance moves, but Hermione tilted her glass at her friend and supported her life choices. Like a good friend. She hiccuped. Susan rolled over onto her side. Her snores were louder than the music. A silencing charm would do, but Hermione had no idea where her wand was, probably for the best. Pansy gave her a look out of the corner of her eye, which made her grin, with all of her teeth. "'Oh, good gods, Hermione, stop smiling!' Pravati exclaimed. "'You look like you've trapped a bug!' There was another riotous round of laughter that she joined in on. Ginny, sometime during the fit of giggles, drifted over and flopped down next to Hermione on the sofa. She'd barely had it time to move her legs. "'Who did he choose?' Ginny asked with a bit of a slur, her cheeks bright red with both exertion from her dancing and from her drinks. Padma, who had long since kicked off her shoes, tucked her feet alongside her while leaning on Cho, pliant and happy. Theo and Draco. Meanwhile, her choices for bridesmaids had been obvious, Parvati and Cho. Hermione would be attending happily as a guest. Besides, Harry and Ginny's chaotic affair had made her seriously question if she wanted her ceremony at all. Should she ever find someone? Or muster the energy to look, for that matter? At Blaze's choices, Parvati lifted her head, a gleam in her dark eyes. He picked Draco? Excellent! Cho tilted her head in curiosity. I'm confused. There wasn't a slur in her words. She was the most sober person in the room, as she didn't drink. One of the many reasons Pansy couldn't stand her. 
just how buckled are you? Yes. Ginny almost choked while Provardi smiled at the inside of her cup before cackling with glee. This is fantastic news. Why are you so excited about this? Cho asked. Draco Malfoy is a massive... She cut her eyes in Pansy's direction and blushed at her misstep. She was talking about a friend of Pansy's who they all knew she was extremely protective over. The witch didn't care, shrugging at her efforts at being tactful while completing her sentence. Wanker, Pratt, Arse, I've called Draco almost every version of the word I know at some point in our lives. Or in the last month. Or week. Pansy cut her eyes at Provardi. The question remains, why are you so excited? Which seemed to be the question of the hour, judging by the look on everyone's face. Provardi glanced around at each of them, more and more aghast by their lack of understanding. Draco Malfoy will be wearing traditional Indrian groomsman robes. She spoke slowly, like they were missing the point, and Hermione probably was, because nothing the witch said made sense. He'll be wearing Indian robes, Padma chuckled knowingly, some twin thing Hermione never understood. The rest of them were still lost. Indian robes! I'm so lost right now, Cho said softly, more to Padma than anyone, but they all heard her anyway. Hermione found herself giggling because the witch's confusion was so loud she almost looked regretful for asking the question that had brought her to that point. Indian! Robes! Pravati emphasized each word with a sharp, cutting motion of her free hand. Yes, 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 we get it, Pansy huffed. Get to the point, for fuck's sake! Are you all fucking kidding me right now? She looked at them all like she was the smartest person in the room. Hermione had evidence to prove otherwise. The man is bloody gorgeous! Parvati brought her hand to her chin, pursing her lips in reflection as she added an addendum to her statement. Well, not accounting for his personality, of course. Cho's face was all scrunched up. That's a pretty large thing to not account for. She glanced over at Pansy, who nodded her approval, then said, He's an arse. Ignoring her, Parvati pushed her braid off of her shoulder. Fair. That's incredibly fair. Witch Weekly asked me to interview the top ten Wizarding World bachelors last week, and Malfoy ranked number one. For a morbid reason, Hermione grimaced. His mom had to force him to attend the interview, but bloody hell is he fit. Have you not seen him? Ginny and Cho exchanged shrugs. They hadn't. Padma and Pansy obviously had. As the only person who didn't answer, Hermione suddenly found all eyes on her. Pravati looked expectant. She scratched her eyebrow before awkwardly replying, Uh, no. Haven't seen him in years, actually, since his trial. Just how the hell have you managed that, Hermione? Pravati scoffed. You have lunch with Harry and they work together. I just haven't. It's not like they're chummy. I imagine they schedule their loo breaks to avoid seeing each other for a second longer than they have to. The room erupted in laughter, despite Hermione being deadly serious about her statement. She just shrugged and started to take another sip of fire whiskey when Ginny made a slow grab that she'd seen coming a kilometer away. Ginny's success at stealing it could be completely blamed on Hermione's poor motor control, and the fact that the room had a nice hazy glow to it. The joke ended up being on Ginny when she took the first sip and blanched at the taste, looking as if she'd swallowed molten lava. She turned wide eyes on Hermione. "'How are you drinking this straight?' Her shrug was lazy at best. "'It's spicy?' She's blitzed, Pansy cut in. Hermione started to argue, but lost both the words and the will. Next time, she vowed while nodding at nothing. Then she chuckled at herself and leaned forward, which was actually to the side because her head was touching Ginny's shoulder. 
Ah, definitely smashed, then. Marvelous. Bravati brought the focus back on herself. Of course she is, but that doesn't matter because Draco Malfoy will be wearing traditional Indian robes, and I appear to be the only one who recognizes it for the gloriousness that it is. Dramatically, she pointed at them all. I am ashamed of all of you. I, for one, don't see him that way because I've known him all his life. Pansy pointed out with a lazy wave of her hand and a sip of her drink. She crossed her legs and leaned back on the sofa. Also, Pansy grimaced, been there, tried to do that fifth year, and that was a terrible mistake we agreed never to speak of again. Then she got up, plucked her glass from Ginny's hand, and wobbled into the kitchen to pour more fire whiskey. Hermione smiled in excitement. Provati looked up, appearing to deeply contemplate her point. You know what? I'll allow that. He was still pointy then. Now, however, I'd give part of my salary for the opportunity to climb him like a tree. Ginny made a high-pitched noise. Her lips pursed and eyes squinted. Pretty certain that's called prostitution. It's a bit illegal, Hermione needlessly pointed out. A bit? Cho and Padma said simultaneously. Then they broke out in light giggles, and the rest of them joined in quickly. Susan continued snoring. Pravati, meanwhile, was glaring at them all, but none of them were threatened by her looks because she was too busy trying not to smile. Okay, poor choice in words, but the fact remains, he's still a bit pointy, gorgeous, and, well, according to the rumors, he has started to date again. After, you know. And they did. The witch cringed at her own insensitivity, not because she felt particularly bad about her words. She would have said it regardless, but rather because Pansy was there. She hadn't been Astoria's friend, but she was Daphne's, and she was well within earshot. But when the witch returned less than a minute later, she handed Jenny her glass and ignored the way Hermione sulked at being cut off before she coolly leveled Pravardi with a look. Don't stop on my account. She sat down and sipped her fire whiskey before she continued on. Seriously, it doesn't offend me because it's a fact. Draco is widowed, and we all knew it was coming after his son's birth. It wasn't a surprise. The surprise was how long Astoria lasted. Ginny refused to share her drink, no matter how much Hermione pouted. His mother is planning to use this season to find him a wife. After running a hand over her still-perfect hair, she gave a very matter-of-fact shrug. Purebloods who are widowed as early as he has been don't typically wait long to remarry, especially when they have young children. It's a witch's duty to raise the children, regardless if they are hers or not. When Padma rested her head on Cho's shoulder, she took to carefully pushing her hair out of her face, frowning when she said, "'Seems cold.' Pansy shrugged with an indifference that came from growing up in that world. "'We all know that we'll never marry for love unless we're okay with living without a family. "'Well,' she offered the now nodding future Mrs. Zabini a meaningful look. "'The Zabinis aren't traditional in any sense of the word, so they don't count. "'The Greengrass family aren't as traditional either,' But they didn't forgive Daphne for running off and marrying Dean until Astoria died. In fact, they still act like he doesn't exist, even though they're about to have a baby. My family was far stricter. Ginny, who had been as quiet and thoughtful as Pavardi, spoke up. Do you regret leaving? Hermione's eyes were suddenly too heavy to keep open, so she allowed her head to rest on the back cushion. The room swayed as if she were on a boat in the middle of the ocean, even though her eyes were shut. Still, when Pansy answered... Hermione heard it loud and clear in the haze of her intoxicated mind. I only regret not leaving sooner. And because she was always so bloody maudlin whenever she drank fire whiskey, the last thing Hermione heard her say before she drifted asleep was, 
I'll never be able to repay Theo, or even Fire Whiskey Scoked Granger over here, for how they helped me figure myself out after, but I'll never forget it either. If you can't pay it back, pay it forward. Catherine Ryan Hyde Chapter 3. Leave Out All the Rest March 21st, 2011 the three keys to gardening, Hermione had learned when she and Neville began expanding hers beyond tomatoes, beans, and courgettes, were good planning, forethought, and strategizing, which made it the ideal hobby for someone like Hermione. At first, it had been a hobby that was critical to her physical and psychological health after quitting the ministry. A sign from her therapist who annoyed her immensely, it was an outlet for frustration with the eggshells everyone walked on around her. But after her fair share of failures— a breakthrough in therapy, and dedicating time to discover things about herself, Hermione began to understand that gardening was more than digging holes, sticking plants in the ground, and keeping them watered properly. It was about making connections. Ones with science, art, and biology. She was fascinated with making things thrive and harmoniously arranging plants in their surroundings. Experimentation was another key to gardening Hermione had yet to master, having learned everything she knew thus far from Neville, books, and experience but that had to do with her own issues. By its very nature, experimentation involved a lot of testing and frequent failures. She'd done a lot of that in her life. She wasn't interested in doing more right now. She wanted to maintain the status quo, plant what she needed that would grow, and use her hard work to help others. She wanted to perfect the process before trying anything new. In order to do that, Hermione was back to doing two things that were at the core of who she was, research and learning but now she was doing it for her own desire to better herself and the world in a capacity that actually made a difference. And it didn't nearly kill her in the process. So instead of laws, both magical and creature, she studied climate and weather patterns in her area and the purpose of indoor sowing. Before long, she was growing her own herbs for potions. Instead of being dragged into the machinations of the most powerful at the ministry who only wanted to use her image to make themselves look better, Hermione studied and tested soil for the right pH balance, and mastered the art of fertilizing the earth correctly for each plant. Instead of politics and learning which members of the Wizengam ought to avoid or approach, she familiarized herself with the correct wards to deter the wrong sort of wildlife. She built a greenhouse, and figured out the magic needed to make it hold everything she needed. And instead of doing the work of six people, Hermione did the job of one, combining all of her knowledge to use cultivate and till the earth to make way for new growth. It was exhilarating, never dull, always therapeutic. A practical hobby for a practical person. Gardening taught her that growth, including that of her mind, body, and ideas, started with a seed. What she did with it was up to her. Losing plants taught the value in all life, human or otherwise, and made her understand the importance of every step involved in nourishing something until it grew healthy and strong. Like herbs for potions, fruits, and vegetables, life needed care and fertilizer, time and patience, sunshine and water to grow. But gardening had also taught her to watch out for weeds. They were hard to define, much like people. Some were harmless, blending into their environment and living alongside the tended plants. In rare cases, they could even be considered beneficial. But others were destructive, and she made certain she pulled them as soon as she spotted them. If she didn't, they could spread and grow stronger, smothering the life out of the other plant's seedlings. Weeds impoverished the soil by depleting anything and everything just to strengthen themselves. 
one such weed was waiting for her in her home office, in the form of Tiberius McLagan. And Hermione couldn't wait for someone to pull him out by the roots. Following the end of the war, the quiet depowering of the position of minister through old laws had created a power vacuum unlike anything the wizarding world had ever seen. Chaos was the reason it went unnoticed. They were all too busy recovering and burying the dead, while every high-ranking ministry official who hadn't been associated with Voldemort rushed in to fill the void. One of those open positions had been Chief Warlock, who was the head of the Wizengamot. The wizard who had filled in was standing in her office, eyeing her table of that month's sows of sweet peas, cauliflower, and peppers that were almost ready to be planted outdoors. His presence wouldn't have been an issue had the changing of the structure of their government not made him the most powerful wizard in the country, because he was as crooked as they came. After receiving Theo's letters of refusal, he usually sent Cormac, and that was always an illuminating experience, especially when he kept his hands and thoughts about her figure to himself. Still, Cormac was easy to handle, but Tiberius... Outside of his penchant for bribing to get his way, she didn't know enough about him to decide one way or another. "'Chief Warlock,' Hermione greeted from her spot at the door, not moving. He was in his late fifties, but looked younger and stronger than ever. Like Cormac, he was tall, broad, and imposing. His brown hair was just as curly as his nephew's, but his eyes were as different as his overall presence. Cormac leered and flirted, but Tiberius was sharper, his attention laser-focused on her. There was a purpose and a reason for seeking her out himself. He seemed like the sort who had a reason behind everything, including his attire. Tiberius arrogantly donned official robes that signified his station, and when he turned, there was a pleasant expression on his face that was as fake as a copper galleon. "'Ah, Miss Granger,' he clasped his hands together. "'I was wondering when you would turn up.' Her plan had been to not turn up until after he had left back out the flu he had entered from— but after thirty minutes of waiting in the vegetable patch, Tiberius showed an aggravating level of persistence, like his nephew. "'Your office is quite... lively.' It was spacious enough and mostly tidy, cozy but about as professional as she could stand. Untouched by Pansy, who was chomping at the bit to decorate it, the office was a mishmash of rococo furnishings that blended in with her white walls and the oak floors that flowed through every room of the house except the kitchen. On the white table in front of the windows, to the left of her desk, next to her vegetables, that were ready to go into the ground, were individual pots with that week's troublemakers, Dittany and Molly, who refused to sprout and needed more attention. "'Thank you,' she inclined her head slightly. "'My personal office hours don't begin for another hour.' "'My apologies. I was unaware that I needed an appointment.' "'Yes, well, regardless of your position—' I have a schedule to keep, and a meeting in an hour, so please be brief. She crossed the room to her cluttered desk, taking her seat and gesturing to the one across from her. Are you here for a consultation? I'm not accepting new patients at the moment, but I can always direct you to one of my peers. That is, if I know what sort of care you need. He declined the seat, further indication that he was there for a specific purpose. I'm not here for a consultation. This is merely a friendly visit. Hermione wasn't sure if his smile was meant to be friendly, menacing, or a little of both. I wasn't aware that we were friends. Tiberius' smile turned cold, definitely intended to be menacing. My nephew has been singing your praises since Hogwarts. He continues to do so after meeting with you regarding your ongoing rejections of the Ministry's offers. 
Keeping the distaste off her face was a struggle. Ah, well, I see. But that doesn't make us friends. Perhaps acquaintances at best. Regardless, he firmly believes you will change your mind. Then it is clear he doesn't know me at all. For a moment, they watched each other like opponents at chess, each trying to figure out the other's moves. Hermione was drawing all sorts of blanks. War hero status aside, she was a small cog in a large machine. His presence broke all kinds of established rules, as did her apathy about it. A bit of advice, Miss Granger. When the chief warlock takes time out of his extremely busy schedule to pay you a visit, you should at least pretend to look happy about it. I'll remember that. She opened her folder on her desk in preparation for her next meeting and folded her hands on top of it, leaning in slightly. You want deference? But call this a friendly visit. I'll confess I'm perplexed. What is it that you want, Chief Warlock? At first, Tiberius said nothing. Moving from the vegetables to the eucalyptus plant, she kept as an insect repellent. Before I knew of your dedication during your time with the Ministry, I thought Cormac was exaggerating his tales of your intelligence. But now I know he was telling the truth. You're smart enough to gauge my reason for coming here. I can, but I don't like to make assumptions. The past work you did for the Ministry before your unfortunate departure was most impressive, so much that I wanted to personally see if you had carried that success on your next position. He gestured to the office around him. It seems that you have. Hermione clenched her jaw. You've been watching me. Watching is such a harsh term with a negative connotation. His evasive response reminded her so much of his nephew, for all the wrong reasons. I prefer to think of it as following your illustrious career. That gave her, well, not an idea, but something that needed confirmation. Ah, so you're behind the job offers from the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, not Hestia. She knew the answer. Hestia always rolled her eyes whenever they discussed the ridiculous offers. If I am? His eyes lingered on the troublemaker plant in her windowsill for a moment before they met hers. The department under Hestia Jones is having an image crisis that even promoting the famous Harry Potter to the head of Aurors has been unable to cure. That was what happened when a dirty wound was left unattended. It festered until it didn't matter how much was done to fix it. The entire limb had to go. It seems that the public's trust in those who uphold law and order is failing. Tiberius glanced out the window before returning his focus to her. It's a problem that Harry doesn't seem to care about. Hermione moved her finger, using wandless magic to lift the kettle, spelled to keep warm. Another flick of her wrist, and it poured the steaming liquid into her empty teacup. Tiberius watched as if she was supposed to have a different reaction, one that didn't have her at ease enough to drink tea in the presence of the most powerful wizard in the country. After taking her first sip, she placed her teacup on the saucer, and addressed the now glaring wizard without interest. One could argue Harry has more than the public's trust to worry about— I can think of a few things, Death Eaters being one that you all seem keen on sweeping under the proverbial rug. An aura is missing, several others were injured just days ago, and yet there was no mention of it in the papers. We felt that there was no need to alarm the public. So, you're controlling the news outlets, Hermione leaned back in her chair. This feels familiar. Tiberius bristled. That's not an accurate statement, Miss Granger. We've merely requested they run the story next week so that it doesn't interfere with the investigation. What investigation? From what I hear, you're not allowing them to send a team after Mathers. 
Tiberius placed his hands behind his back, a comfortable and superior position. He wasn't threatened by her either. It appeared that he felt the need to show it. Interesting. You're very informed for someone who left the ministry and has no inclination to return. I am. It was a bold statement, but so was her next. And I don't. Shame, he tisked. Harry Potter could use you at his side. Draco Malfoy could, too. Keeping her recoil internal, she took another sip of tea. Why put them into positions of power if you don't believe they can do the job without someone else on their team? Their talent wasn't the reason they were placed in their current positions. That much Hermione already knew, but she was patiently listening, watching the chief warlock explain himself with bold gestures. Harry Potter is the boy who lived, defender of all that is good and just. Draco Malfoy is redemption in the form of a man who turned on those his family used to align themselves with, rivals and enemies to allies. Their partnership is poetic. What utter tripe. Apologies for my brusqueness. This isn't a theatrical performance, Chief Warlock. This is real life, with far-reaching consequences for your actions, or lack thereof. They may be qualified for the positions, but we each have a role we must play to ensure the preservation of our government and our way of life. Preserve was an interesting way to phrase that, when there was still so much that needed to be changed, so much that was still so wrong, so much that was corrupted, tainted by their mishandling. All of us must do our part, including you, Miss Granger. People respect you. They remember your efforts in the war. The Ministry would benefit, or, rather than use me as a draw to complete your trifecta, to tote around as proof of your dedication to the fight against Death Eaters, you could actually do your jobs, and provide the funding the Ors Office and Task Force need to clean up the mess created by the Wizengamot's ignorance. They're underfunded, not nearly trained enough, and spread thin. And yet, you are constantly giving them more responsibilities. The Ministry has many duties. We merely requested the Ore Department and the Task Force to perform theirs so that we can dedicate our efforts to restoring our economy, and I'm aware of your duties to the economy. Hermione folded her arms. But tell me something. Where do the people rank on that list? People benefit from economic growth and stability. I'm talking about right now. What are you doing to help those who need it most at this very moment? Because it takes time for that to trickle down. Meanwhile, the rich get richer and people become more disenchanted. Hermione's stare sharpened like a blade. How's business in Diagon Alley? He would know. He owned every business and building, after all. Except the joke shop. And the fact that the chief warlock was allowed to manage his business and real estate while passing laws he directly benefited from was unconscionable. Unfortunately, due to a lack of precedent, there were no applicable wizarding laws. So while it wasn't illegal, the blatant disregard of any sort of ethics was appalling. It exposed a massive hole in the way things were run, a hole the Wizengamot had no interest in filling. And people noticed. "'Business is not what I am here to discuss with you today, Miss Granger. My nephew hasn't been successful in having a conversation with you that would persuade you to change your mind regarding our repeated offers.' So I thought I would come here to figure out what it is that you want. I'm willing to negotiate terms, salary, and further compensation upon measurable success, he paused. Things that no one else needs to know. Now that he was showing exactly who he was, devoid of the public mask, Hermione shed hers. More like ripped it off. 
I don't want anything you can provide me. I assure you, your problems are larger than me and my so-called influence, and I am not interested in being the Ministry's puppet again. Tiberius said nothing for a long moment. I suppose you are part of the group that wants to unseat the Wizengamot. Hermione kept her face perfectly blank. He was not correct, as she had no direct dealings with them, but he wasn't wrong either. We know they exist, he said in response to her silence. They support you too, that is, should you return. Ah, well that explained it. They wanted her under their thumb. I have no intentions to return. Not for you, not for anyone. Perhaps you should focus less on bribing me, less on trying to scheme in order to quiet the complaints, and more on doing your job. Protect the people. Help them. Give the Ors and Task Force a fighting chance with the funding and time they need to— There are over a hundred Aurors. I am aware. She gave him a dark look that he returned with a challenge. I used to track that sort of thing when I worked for the Ministry in one of the many official jobs. They are trying to keep up with regular crime committed by desperate people who haven't recovered from the war that took place thirteen years ago, while also fighting off Death Eaters in the countryside that are hiding in plain sight, and picking them off one group at a time, not to mention working to find their base of operation. There aren't enough people to do what you're asking of them. The Ministry, I won't discuss the rising increase in popularity of the Death Eaters' cause. Hermione was in no mood for excuses. And while they agree Voldemort was a megalomaniac with a philosophy that was severely flawed, the general consensus is that a regime change is a far better option than what they have right now. The expression on the Chief Warlock's face shifted to something tight, his anger barely restrained. Tiberius clearly wasn't going to be spoken to in the manner in which Hermione was speaking to him, used to respect. Well, respect was earned. I think you have forgotten who I am. I assure you I know exactly who you are. Your robes show the power you're happily wielding, no matter how unqualified. Nevertheless, I don't work for the Ministry. We make rules that affect you. True, and not in all the good ways. His jaw worked as he continued to keep his temper in check. And your department is funded by the Ministry. Correction. Was. The startup was used for reasons you already know, but now we're self-funded through our research grants in a hospital that's privately owned. Not only do you have no power over my job, you also don't have any power in my home. Hermione allowed her words to hang in the air as she comfortably took another sip of her tea. Peppermint with no sugar or honey. But instead of lashing out, Tiberius did something odd. He smiled and looked genuinely pleased, positively electrified, engaged and intrigued by her. He actually looked a bit mad. You have so much fire in you, Miss Granger. So much passion and brilliance. You're just what we need. You should consider returning and putting your skills to good use. As I have stated many times over, I have no interest in returning to the Ministry. I'm not playing anyone's game. Is this about the Ministry's handling of your incident? The casual way in which she spoke of something so deeply personal made her flinch visibly. It set her on edge. Yes, most definitely, but also no. It was the best answer she could think of. Oh, Tiberius looked intrigued. I'm aware of my own failings in that regard. 
I didn't prioritize myself and put my trust in an institution that did not care if I lived or died, an institution that just wanted me to get my work done, and continue spouting praises for the ministry until I was blue in the face, quite literally. Unfortunately, she wasn't exaggerating. At the height of Hermione's rise in the ministry, when she was working extremely long hours and not tending to herself, she remembered feeling a wave of lightheadedness, then nothing else. She had no memory of it, but someone found her convulsing on the floor and rushed her to St. Mungo's. A week later, she woke up with no memories or knowledge of just how close to death she had worked herself. All she could recall were the worried faces of her friends, and later her parents, who struggled with the fact that she'd lost memories of an entire week to seizures she still couldn't remember. Seizures that had left her magic errant for weeks. Her body was weak for longer. Her mind distressed and unable to string together complicated thoughts. Seizures that still threatened to return if she didn't monitor her stress. They wanted her back in the office two days after she had woken up. That request had sparked her decision to leave. Her health had been a gamble they were willing to take for their self-proclaimed greater good, and that left a sour taste in her mouth. Tiberius approached the topic like the politician he was, carefully. I will admit that the handling could have been better. However, however, we have nothing left to discuss. Please consider this my refusal of all offers extended. I have matters to attend to before my office hours begin. Please see yourself out. She was halfway out the door when she heard him again. You should reconsider, Miss Granger. I know how much you enjoy making a difference. You could help thousands. I'd rather do it my own way, thank you. The allure was simply not enough. With that, she left. March twenty-second, two 2011 Exactly one day after confirming her consultation with Theo's mystery patient, Hermione was sitting in her home office, reading through their file for the third time, when Narcissa Malfoy stepped out of the flu. Interesting. She wasn't the last person Hermione expected to see, but she was very close. That position belonged to her son. If it meant anything, she looked equally as surprised to see Hermione. The nonverbal clue told her that Theo was far sneakier than she had realized. He hadn't told either of them the complete story. And before she could speculate or speak to the witch who tried, but ultimately failed to suppress her shock, the flu burst to life again as two security wizards stepped out. They took their place on either side of their charge, folding their arms in an attempt to look intimidating with their matching black robes and deep frowns. Like Hermione was a threat. She almost laughed. Narcissa stood out from her guards in lavender robes with silver accents, but Hermione spotted the mismatched gold band on a plain necklace. Her makeup, which highlighted her best features, was as perfect as her coiffed blonde hair. She was dressed too impressed, and Hermione wondered if she might have dressed differently had she known the identity of the healer she was scheduled to meet. When she was younger, she knew the answer, but now it wasn't so clear. Hermione gestured to the chair in front of her desk. "'Please do take a seat.' Addressing Narcissa's security wizard, she said, "'You both are welcome to wait outside the door.' Narcissa sat in the offered chair with her hands properly placed in her lap and her back straight. Her guards remained rooted to their spots. Hermione stared at each of them, but they simply returned her pointed glare. The moment she was about to open her mouth and tell them to leave again, Narcissa raised one finger and motioned towards the door. The last one shut the door, and they were alone. Hermione allowed her eyes to slide from left to right, before settling back on the witch sitting in front of her. 
It was the part of the conversation where she would usually ask the patient to tell her a little about themselves and what they sought to accomplish under her care, but today she merely waited. There was no need for formalities. They knew each other, even if it was barely well enough to identify the other on the street or inside her home during a war. Today, Hermione decided to sit, wait, and watch as Narcissa's eyes scanned everything in her periphery, because the witch was too proper to turn her head or nose up. It didn't matter. Hermione knew what she was seeing. They were in her home, after all. On the walls, surrounding her white bookshelves that were spilling over with books, hung her accolades, her certificates, and the awards she'd won. Narcissa stared at each frame as closely as she could from where she sat, scanning each with sharp eyes, as if she found it impossible that someone as young as Hermione had managed to accomplish so much. But she was thirty-one, with an order of Merlin hanging in the center of her wall of achievements. When Narcissa saw it, she stopped trying to scrutinize. She started to take her seriously. It did nothing to help convince Hermione to accept her as a patient. It was business, she would explain to Narcissa at the end of the appointment, nothing personal. Theodore did not inform me that you were the healer he had arranged for this consultation. I surmised as much, Hermione glanced down at the file in front of her, when you requested the best. She raised her eyes to meet Narcissa's sharp gaze. You should have been more specific if a certain blood status was a prerequisite for your treating healer. My request was accurate, the older witch delicately patted her hairline with a silk-embroidered handkerchief. Hermione noted the sweat before she dabbed it away. Just seeing one symptom was enough to inform her that the potions she had been prescribed were not working. Pity. Narcissa seemed aware of her observation, and brought her hand back down as she narrowed her eyes defensively. "'You could be a troll as far as I am concerned, Miss Granger. However, if you are indeed the best, then I am in the correct office.' "'Very well,' Hermione said nothing further on the subject. Silence wasn't entirely uncommon during consultations. Some patients struggled to accept that they needed her help, but the ones that fell between them were different. Heavier. It coiled around Hermione, reaching into her stomach to settle there in a hard knot of history. There was so much of it, and it was complicated. Here was a witch who had been a prisoner in her own home when it had been converted into an unfathomable hell. A witch who had lied to Voldemort about Harry being dead, risking her life to protect her son. And here also was the witch, whose sister who had taken joy in torturing her. Yet she was asking for Hermione's help. The irony was not lost on her. But years in therapy had taught her that healing from trauma wasn't just physical or mental. It was also about taking charge of her personal liberation from the mental state of victimization by not allowing herself to let past trauma interfere with her present future. While looking at Narcissa, she reminded herself that she'd already forgiven the witch and her family. She had let it go years ago, and she refused to go back to that place once more. She hadn't forgiven them for their sake. No, it was for hers. Hermione knew that she couldn't grow if she held on to every grudge, couldn't fly if she allowed herself to stay grounded by every weight in her past. And she very much wanted to do both. Forgiveness wasn't an action, but a choice that she continued to make every day. It wasn't easy, but Hermione had accepted her decision not to allow hate to cloud her judgment any more, and that granted her the peace of mind she needed to be objective about the witch in front of her. Detached enough to consider the facts of the assignment, and not the patient. The truth was that she couldn't accept her as a patient, no matter what the angle. 
Hermione had rules about accepting patients she knew in any capacity. She mentally glared rusty daggers at Theo because he had known that all along, and yet he had still suggested she keep an open mind. "'Would you care for tea?' Hermione politely gestured to the kettle on her desk, charmed to stay warm. She provided this blend during all of her initial consultations. "'It's a blend of lemon balm, kava, and valerian root. It's good to calm the nerves.' Narcissa looked mildly impressed, but ultimately declined. "'My nerves are perfectly calm, thank you.' "'Hm.' Hermione saw the subtle signs of stress, whether intentional or not. She saw the eye movements and tension in her shoulders that spoke to it, but she refused to make assumptions about a witch she hardly knew. Thirteen years had passed, and she doubted Narcissa Malfoy was the same witch that she had been. That was impossible. Losing her husband and way of life had changed her, made her retreat— she disappeared from both London society and the country itself, living in an undisclosed part of France until recently. And yet, she had been busy in her self-imposed exile. Two years after her husband's death, Narcissa had published a tell-all that Hermione had never bothered with, but Andromeda had read it roughly six months after it had been released. It accurately detailed her life growing up in the black household, with a very honest telling of Andromeda and serious exits from the family— one that the witch herself couldn't denounce. She wrote of her marriage, her son, without many details, as he wished for privacy, the events that led to Voldemort living in their home, and every bit of suffering that followed up until her betrayal the night of the Battle of Hogwarts. Andromeda had cried when she read Narcissa's words to Lucius about those final few moments when he'd hid her and their son away before the Death Eaters attacked. She cried harder when Narcissa detailed watching the manor burn from a distance with Draco at her side. She wrote about it all, the emotions she felt, the pain, the parallels between her fate and the manners, destined to be both consumed and preserved by the never-ending magical fire. It had been hailed as a poignant and harsh yet honest tale of a witch's journey through life on the wrong side of the war, the bestseller that had propelled her into stardom after a brutal war. Now that Narcissa was sitting in her office, Hermione wondered if she carried the same prejudices that had been instilled in her from birth— or if the war had taught her that there was a better way. Bigotry was hard to notice in oneself, and harder still to change, but it could be done. Maybe change had already taken root, but Hermione would never know, because Narcissa was still a private and proud woman, but only proud of what she had created, overcome, and achieved. Exactly in that order. The rest, Hermione could tell, was too murky for her to tackle with a patient she didn't intend on acquiring— so she waited out the silence by sipping her own tea, green with a twist of fresh lemon from her greenhouse. A quick glance was all the other woman received before Hermione continued detailing notes for Roger Davies, whom she intended on passing Narcissa's case along to. He would enjoy the challenge. "'I thought that you would ask more questions, Miss Granger.' "'What would you like me to ask?' Hermione rested her elbows on the arm of her chair, relaxing as she tapped her fingers together and looked the blonde witch straight in the eye— I've read your file. Three times. Perhaps you might inquire about my current condition. Honestly, I don't specialize in your condition, but from what I've observed, the elixirs and potions they have prescribed you are either not working, not the correct combination, or you aren't taking them consistently. Then she waved her hand and the kettle lifted off the table, pouring hot tea into the glass teacup in front of her. Narcissa hesitated for a moment before properly picking up the cup and taking a sip. After noting her approval, Hermione continued on. 
I have noticed that you are currently experiencing symptoms, sweats mainly, but if I were to run diagnostic charms on you, I would likely find your pulse and blood pressure elevated. You've taken particular care of your makeup, likely because it covers the fact that you aren't sleeping well, and you experience daytime drowsiness. I've poured tea for you because you don't seem to trust yourself. Have you dropped anything recently due to tremors? Have you ended up in a place not remembering how you got there? Have you mixed up people's identities, even infrequently? Hermione noticed the slight twitch in Narcissa's jaw that confirmed both her observations and answers. That's the nature of your disease. I don't have any questions about what I already know. Narcissa sat the teacup on the saucer, looking stiff. It seems that Draco did not exaggerate in any of his childhood accounts of your intelligence. It is my job to be observant. Hermione suppressed her chuckle by taking a quick sip of tea before continuing her notes with the recommendations of care to Davies. Narcissa took a delicate sip of her tea. For a moment, she was quiet. I know what you must think of me for coming here for your help after what happened between you and my sister. Her tone was so matter-of-fact that it prompted Hermione's candid admission. To be quite honest, until you came through my flu today, I barely thought about you. Well, unless your other sister mentioned you. It wasn't often, but she kept that piece to herself. And for good reason, judging by the stony look on Narcissa's face. Over the years, Andromeda had seemed keen on reconnecting with her younger sister, but it had yet to happen. She'd spoken of it, wrote letter after letter, but hadn't sent a single one. Hermione wondered if finding out about Narcissa's illness would change things, but it wasn't her place to deliver that information. With that being said, Hermione continued, trying to steer them back into the realm of professional conversation befitting their current meeting. I know you aren't here to discuss the past, and neither am I. I'd like to leave it behind us. This is your time to speak about your goals and motivation for seeking treatment. As I decline, my condition will require constant care. It sounded like Narcissa had accepted her disease, which was honestly better than most patients in her predicament. Hermione made a quick note to Davies. I am aware... But why specifically me? You are the best, according to Theodore. I trust his judgment. Narcissa placed her half-empty teacup on the saucer and straightened her spine. I cannot change my fate, but it appears that with the proper care, I will be able to buy myself time. I... When she folded one hand over the other on Hermione's desk, she seemed to strip away all the pretenses and pride, highlighting the reality of her condition and her reason for seeking such specialized care at such a high price. Patiently, she waited until Narcissa finally spoke. I am not finished preparing myself and my family. I would also prefer that my grandson not lose his mother and grandmother so close together. He's just a boy. An odd feeling came over her when she actually allowed herself to think about the fact that Draco Malfoy, of all people, had become a husband, a father, and a widower before the age of thirty, and she was still, well, single, no prospects, no children of her own. Not that she was complaining or wanted a different circumstance, but it was a jarring comparison. She dusted away the thought like an annoying piece of lint and kept moving forward. And Draco, he's, he is not ready to be alone. A complex maelstrom of emotions warred across Narcissa's features right then, one that seemed to threaten to pull her under. Hermione remained a good distance away, trying to recall where she'd put the box of tissues, and quietly summoning them from the table where her stubborn plants were fighting against nature itself. Hermione wanted to tell her that, while she'd spent her life protecting her son, no one could prevent the inevitable. 
but she kept her thoughts to herself, firmly locked away as she waited patiently for Narcissa to pull herself back together. I would like to see him settled and remarried before I... well, sooner rather than later. He complies with my request to take marriage meetings. Funny name for a date, she thought sarcastically. But I know he is stalling, biding his time. My son is an intelligent man, but he is more stubborn than practical. He likes to control the things he can, and he thinks he can control this by waiting. Hermione nodded along, half listening. She was still distracted by that bothersome piece of lingering mental lint. Of course, she had known that Malfoy's father had been killed. Everyone knew and had mixed feelings about whether or not Lucius Malfoy had redeemed himself in death. It was such a gray area that Hermione vowed never to broach the subject. It wasn't her place. Hermione also knew that Draco's marriage to Astoria Greengrass had been finalized the year his mother had published her book. Hermione had heard about the birth of his son, Scorpius, shortly before Al's birth in a roundabout way. The announcement had been splashed all over the society papers Hermione used as compost. Daphne had been part of her circle of friends before she eloped with Dean, and she talked of her nephew from time to time, but mainly with Ginny because Albus was his age. And when Astoria died last November, Daphne, who had been missing from their Friday gatherings during her younger sister's rapid decline, had turned up at Hermione's house at three in the morning the day of her funeral. She was in tears and didn't know what flowers to bring. Flowers just from her. Hermione had given her a pot of gladiolus from her greenhouse, told her to plant them by her graveside, and quietly spelled them to remain in a state of stasis. She'd never met Astoria, but from Daphne, she knew of her strength and sincerity. The flowers seemed appropriate, but the act was done for a friend who was mourning, not for Draco Malfoy's deceased wife. And while Hermione knew all of this, she had never spared a moment to analyze what any of that meant as it pertained to Malfoy or his state of being, his job, his role as father and son, the threats against his family. Hermione never once thought about any of those events as something that had occurred in his life, incidents that could and would find him. But they had. You can't make him prepare, Hermione said in an attempt to firmly push the thoughts away before they could completely crystallize. It has to be a choice that he makes on his own, one that only he can make. Perhaps, Narcissa lifted her head, still looking grim, but I would like the time to try, for both of their futures. It is only proper that he marries to provide a mother for Scorpius, which is my goal while I am still alive. She looked as if she were trying to find something in Hermione's expression, and when she found whatever she was searching for, she rose to her feet, smoothing her robes with firm strokes. Her eyes widened slightly when Narcissa gave her a cold look. It appears that I will not find the extra time I need under your care. Hermione raised a single eyebrow in response. Just as you are observant, Miss Granger, I am as well. I haven't lost myself just yet. Hermione rested back on her chair and listened with a blank look on her face. I have seen enough healers in the last year to know that, had you wished to accept me as a patient, this consultation would have gone very differently. You would have done your own diagnostic charms and compared them to your prior readings. She wasn't wrong. You would have explained why your care has been described by many as exemplary, and by now we would be reviewing parchments with a more detailed layout of your treatment plans. There was no need to mince words. She'd never been good at it. You're correct. Hermione stood up as well and walked around her desk, approaching as the other witch watched her every move with sharp eyes. Narcissa certainly hadn't appreciated the rejection. 
No matter. Hermione didn't like the fact that she'd been put in the position in the first place. It was a moot point, but that didn't mean she would be rude. Now, standing in front of Narcissa, she couldn't help but make comparisons between them. While the older witch was well put together, even after the episode during their consultation, Hermione was not. Her hair was pulled back in a rushed bun, and she wore comfortable faded jeans, a long-sleeved gray shirt, and ankle-high wellies. Not professional, but she had been checking on the outdoor herbs before a night of rain when she remembered the appointment. There was still dirt on one of her knees, but she made no move to brush it away. Instead, she stood straight under Narcissa's scrutiny. "'I'm referring you to Healer Davies. He's excellent, and will be willing to accept the terms of your contract.' With a wave of her hand, the door opened and the guards immediately filed in. "'He would be best to handle your specific needs.' Narcissa bristled. "'Might I have a reason as to why you're refusing to accept me?' She held up a hand and gesture for her to wait. "'I have answered my own question, of course. It has to do with our history on opposite sides of the war.' If that were the case, it would be my right to make that decision. She inclined her head slightly to one side. Don't you agree? A flash of something passed over the older witch's face, frustration or shame. She couldn't tell which, but she exhaled and didn't argue because she knew she couldn't. I do. Hermione noted the reluctance in her voice, but knew that it came from a place of pride. Honesty wasn't easy for everyone. However, that simply isn't the truth. Hermione kept her tone direct but professional. Regardless of the past, I don't work with patients that I know in any capacity due to the involved nature of the care that I provide. It's a rule of mine that is very well established, and I am perplexed as to why Theo referred you to me, knowing our history. Theo has his own motivations. That was something they could agree on. What the motivation was, she wasn't certain, but it had to be large if he thought she would break her rules and treat Narcissa for him. Narcissa thought about asking if she knew Theo's endgame, but the older witch likely wouldn't tell her without a price. I suppose he does. However, I don't need his approval to deny you, Hermione said bluntly, meeting Narcissa's gaze with one of her own. I'll see to it that Roger gets your file and schedules an appointment with you as soon as possible. I wish you the best of luck. I thank you, Miss Granger, Narcissa said thinly, for nothing more than wasting my time. Hermione never learned to cook with magic. Even under Mrs. Weasley's tutelage, she had never been able to master the craft. Molly had said she lacked the drive, a phrase that had never before been used to describe Hermione Granger, but she might have had a point. The issue wasn't a lack of interest, but rather that it never felt natural. Maybe it was due to years of eating her mum's failures and triumphs, but Hermione found very little joy in food that was too perfect— Something about a meal coming out a bit oblong or a touch too dark, one that she had made with her own hands, was more appealing than one that was flawless thanks to the aid of magic. Ron thought it was a pity that she'd never learned, but he never mentioned it again when she suggested that he should be the one to join Harry in taking lessons from Molly if he wanted magically cooked meals. Ron's silence was likely due to his inability to answer the question as to why he didn't need to learn in a way that wouldn't get him hexed. When Hermione had moved into her house and started her vegetable patch, but before she'd started Healer Academy, she had been in a bookstore in Godric's Hollow, on the hunt for a book to help with her struggling wormwood plant. Neville had been busy, so she'd taken it upon herself to find the information she needed. During her search, Hermione had walked down the wrong aisle and came face to face with a row of muggle cookbooks. Impulsively, she'd purchased one that had Simple in the title. 
It came with a free book stand, and Hermione left happy with her decision. Until a month later, when she'd finally found a moment to attempt shepherd's pie. It had ended with Hermione using her wand to air out the smoke and char from her kitchen. She'd quickly learned the error of her ways and decided to start from scratch. Eggs and boiled potatoes. Then grew on that. Improved. Worked until she was ready to try recipes out of the book again. Cooking was a lot like potions. If she followed the recipes verbatim, she wouldn't have any issues. And while that wasn't always true, she still used her skills in brewing to get better. After a series of lackluster attempts while discovering the art of seasoning with herbs and spices, the first successful meal Hermione had made, that her friends genuinely enjoyed, was Beef Wellington. She'd made it to celebrate finishing her first year of Healer Academy, and as they ate and raved, Hermione had felt a sense of accomplishment that waving her wand to cook couldn't replicate. After the conclusion of her appointment with Narcissa, Hermione, now far more proficient, didn't have the time needed to recreate her first success for dinner with her friends that evening, so she opted for something simple. Cocavan, with roasted new potatoes and a salad made with homegrown spring greens. She just set the warming charms on her meal and started prepping the salad when Harry stepped out of the flue. Ginny had taken the kids to Shell Cottage that morning for the weekend so they could spend time with their older cousins, Louis and Dominique, who hadn't gone off to Hogwarts yet. Harry brought over a Pinot Noir and a bottle of Ogden's because they'd finished the last one the previous Friday, which had made Saturday rough. Al hadn't minded just laying in the conservatory after their walk towards the forest because even after a hangover potion, Hermione hadn't been able to do much else. Hey, it smells great in here. Do you need any help? Harry was always willing to help however he could, but Hermione sat down the knife she was using to chop the red peppers for the salad and shook her head. I'm putting the last bit into the salad, so no. She grinned at her best friend, accepting both his embrace and the wine she put in the chiller. The Ogdens went under the island, stored with the rest of the liquors she'd collected over the years. We're just waiting for everyone else. Who all's coming? Ron and Pansy. First Harry rolled his eyes, because the two constantly argued, and then he smirked. She knew he rather enjoyed the bickering. Hermione laughed. She promised to behave. I'll believe it when I see it. Fair point, Hermione shrugged. How was your day? She asked carefully. It would be rude if she didn't, even though she already knew the answer. Harry had been promoted to head of the aura department after the prior head had gotten so fed up with Draco Malfoy that he'd retired eight years early just to avoid working with him. Harry had no illusions about the reason he'd been promoted. He was, after all, the boy who lived. Twice. And the Ministry used Harry the same way they had once tried to use her. As a symbol. A prop. He was a promotional tool they wielded to maintain the public's trust, without any power to make real change. But unlike her, Harry had accepted the role for his own reasons. He believed that the reason behind his promotion wouldn't negate the good he could accomplish. He was determined to eliminate the threat of the Death Eaters, not just for the Wizarding World, but for his family as well. His new position had come with an office, a more generous salary, and the very large task of collaborating with the Terrorism Task Force, and Draco Malfoy. The Wizengamot had put pressure on them both to make measurable progress as the public's disapproval with the Ministry as a whole continued to decline, especially after a Death Eater attack in December that had leveled an entire wizarding village as nothing more than a message to the Ministry. And yet, despite the heavy odds, underfunding, and general chaos, they'd had a few successes and captured a handful of high-ranking Death Eaters in the last two months. However, that wasn't enough to appease the Wizengamot. 
but Rome wasn't built in a day, and neither were their problems. Hermione found it appalling that they'd had the audacity to give him so little and demand so much, but she didn't work at the ministry, so it wasn't her place to object. Mostly. Things had been tense. It didn't help that the two men at the center of all of it could barely stand each other. After years of therapy, Harry had learned better coping skills addressing his childhood trauma, and made peace with a long list of losses he'd endured along the way. He was calmer now that the peace of Voldemort had been killed off, able to focus. He smiled more and was harder to anger, especially after becoming a father. But he hadn't quite gotten past his old grudge. Not completely. There was something about Malfoy that woke up the fifteen-year-old inside Harry that had wanted very much to punch him in the face. Regularly. Repeatedly. Harry ranted about him often enough that Hermione would complete several mental tasks, make her list for the market, update her to-do list, and do a little aimless mind-wandering while Harry let it all out. It never failed that whatever she did, whenever she returned to him, he would still be complaining. Today was no exception. My day was normal in that Malfoy was being an utter bastard. Harry threw up his hands just as Hermione started the timer on her watch. She wanted to know if he would break his own rant record this time. Remember that raid I told you about? She nodded mechanically. Malfoy, after an exhaustive search, had located the Welsh hideout for the Lestrange brothers at the end of last year. Then he'd recruited a wizard to infiltrate their ranks. Two weeks ago, that spy had reported back that there would be a meeting with the highest-ranking Death Eaters, but the date was not yet known, only that it would be before the end of May. From what Harry had disclosed, it seemed like they could end it all during this raid. Everyone had been discreetly preparing. Cursebreakers were slowly being pulled off assignments to examine evidence and dark objects found that would assist the prosecution. Hit wizards and magical law officers were being pulled in to grow their numbers, but they hadn't had the time or capacity for the training needed to make them a more unified front. Yeah, well, he dismissed every team lead I've suggested without any reason beyond thinking they're incompetent, but wouldn't suggest orders that he approved of because that's my job. Hermione kept her flinch inward, but only just barely. She could practically hear those words coming from Draco. Well, the sixteen-year-old version of him. She hadn't been in the same room as the adult version, and thus had no reference material unless she counted Harry's accounts. And, well, her best friend was a lot of things, but he wasn't always a reliable source when it came to Draco Malfoy. However, if she were to judge his character based on Harry's complaints and the bits that she had heard about him, Hermione would say he was still the same bastard he'd been during school, no matter how incredibly fit Pavardi had found him. "'Every plan I've designed around entry points into the manor he's rejected,' He called them simple, and then I'll get everyone killed, and that my freakishly good luck only extends to me. Privately, Hermione heard that one in Malfoy's teenaged voice, and wondered if it was too early to open the new bottle of Ogden's. For him. Oh! Harry snapped his fingers. And then I recommended Peruvian instant darkness powder, and Malfoy said no, because it's too messy. He wasn't wrong, but Hermione didn't say anything. Yet. I brought in a wards expert to remove the ward, but he found someone else, a pure blood, to do it. Harry, whose cheeks had gone red, balled his fists, one of these several anger management tips he'd learned over the years. It didn't look to be working because he was in full-on rant mode. I just hate it when we meet with the Wizengamot. I have to pretend like everything is just fine. Pretend that I'm not working with the biggest wanker I've ever known. And I have to act like a fucking professional when all I want to do is toss him out my window every single time I see his ferret face. 
Harry took two deep, cleansing breaths, a technique he'd picked up from Ginny's Lamaze classes. Then he smiled. That felt good. Better out than in. True, said Hermione, stopping her watch, hoping he didn't realize that she had been timing his Malfoy-centered rants. He hated when she did that. The record had been six minutes and thirteen seconds, set the day of their first meeting as heads of their respective departments. They'd nearly come to blows. Today he hadn't even been close. One minute and thirty-five seconds. Hermione cleared her throat, and hoped she wouldn't start another rant with her perspective on the matter. She'd hate to have to restart the clock. While I don't entirely disagree with Malfoy, at the betrayed look on her best friend's face, she raised both her hands. Hear me out, Harry. He's got a point about Peruvian instant darkness powder. It's a hindrance that will only cause more injuries through friendly fire. Besides, last I heard, the Hand of Glory was locked away in the Department of Ministries. I doubt anyone will approve its use as giving its tendency to wind up in the wrong hands. At that, Harry pulled face, frowning deeply. I didn't think about it like that. He rolled his eyes. If he'd said it like that, I wouldn't have argued so hard about it. Malfoy probably would have, but Hermione let Harry think that while she sat the bowl with the mixed salad in the fridge to keep cool while they waited. The next person arrived not long after that. As soon as Hermione shut the door and turned around, ready to bring up Tiberius's visit, Pansy arrived with a small pop, wearing a long-sleeved turquoise bohemian play dress that had small flowers she couldn't identify from across the room. She did, however, recognize the positively thunderous look on Pansy's face— if Hermione were a betting person, she'd wager her entire Gringotts vault on the possibility that she was the source of Pansy's ire. If not for the glare in her icy blue eyes, then for the fact that she started yelling before Harry could greet her. "'I can't believe you rejected her as a patient!' Hermione had never even considered herself an overly emotional person. There were moments when her heart went out over her brain, moments when she reacted too quickly." She was human, after all, and that meant she constantly found herself balancing between hundreds of extremes. But generally, she prided herself on using her brain and logic to sort through every situation as it manifested itself. And this was an issue. While maintaining detachment, Hermione approached the island where Harry sat in wide-eyed silence, while the witch to the right of him practically panted her indignation. Though there were several questions that crossed her mind. How? What? When? Who? She cast them aside to focus on Pansy before burning anger left scorch marks on everything. This is about Narcissa Malfoy. It was an overly calm, rhetorical statement designed to distract Pansy, and it worked. Her eyes went wide as she sputtered like a fish out of water, her mouth opened and closed just as fast. Before she could get her second wind, Hermione rested one hand on the granite. I have theories about how you managed to find out so quickly— or why you're involved in this matter to begin with. But I won't deny that I rejected her as a patient. Why? And don't waste your breath spouting your healer rubbish about not being able to be objective because you know her. I wasn't born yesterday, Granger. I don't tell you how to do your job, so you don't get to tell me how to do mine. Harry cleared his throat. How about I just... Without taking her eyes off Pansy, Hermione raised her hand. Stop talking, Harry. Okay. Don't talk to him like that! Pansy cut her eyes at Harry, who looked just as surprised by her defense before she swore violently. What the? You've got me defending Potter, for fuck's sake! You owe me a drink when I stop being mad at you! Shite! That didn't even feel right! Harry frowned when he wanted to be offended, but then he shrugged. She had a point. 
Hermione, on the other hand, examined Pansy with a probing look, the other which had always hated. In fact, she probably would have hissed like a cat had they not had an audience. "'I'm surprised you are the one arguing on her behalf, and not her actual son.' Pansy rolled her eyes. "'Draco would sooner choke on his pride and die than ask for help from anyone. It's not his way. It never has been his way. Control issues galore.' Their relationship is strained at best anyway, and he has enough problems on his hands. The threats work. I'd say Scorpius, too, but he's not involved in child-rearing. That's Narcissa's job now that Astoria's gone. Hermione recalled that bothersome thought one more time before firmly locking it away, and throwing away the key. Hermione tilted her head. Why do you care? I've known Narcissa my entire life. She's been more of a mother to me than my own. And that was before she burned me. Pansy looked away and then back touching her hair, seemingly uneasy with her own candidness, especially around Harry, who looked intrigued. As soon as she heard what happened, she gave me a chance to get away from it all until I was ready to stand on my own two feet. She spoke of Narcissa like Hermione spoke of Mrs. Weasley. It was a comparison she couldn't ignore. When she told me about her illness, and Theo said that he was going to ask you to take her case, I was relieved because I knew she would be in the best hands. I hope she might live as long as possible. Scorpius, though, while I don't exactly agree with how rigid she is being with his schooling, needs the stability as long as possible. And I've seen how dedicated you are to your patients. I thought... Her voice went brittle. Well, obviously, I was wrong. Have you seen me with my patients? Because I don't believe you truly have. I essentially become a part of their lives. I monitor everything from their meals to their family situations, and should anything negatively affect them, I rectify the situation. I grow the ingredients for their potions in my greenhouse, and what I can't find, I acquire, no matter how specific. Pansy tried to interject. I... It takes time and effort and a certain finesse that's not typical of any healer out there. The meals they eat are from my vegetable patch, made by my own hands. I'm not just their healer. I don't simply wave a wand, feed them potions, and make them better. I look out for their physical, mental, and emotional health. I help their families, because most people forget how much of a difference a supportive and knowledgeable family can make when it comes to a patient's care. Narcissa's, from what little I got from her today, is convoluted at best, not to mention the fact that I don't even specialize in her disease. Pansy folded her arms against her chest. I know that. All of that. Then you should understand why I won't take her. Don't judge what you don't understand. For a moment, her blue eyes were unguarded and opened. She just wants time, Hermione. Roger will be... Davies? She blanched. That pompous prat. He'd sooner... It's not about Roger's personality. It's about his ability to do his job objectively. Narcissa and I have a history, Pansy, and it's complicated. That's like asking Harry to care for her. It's... I'd do it, Harry interrupted with a small, casual shrug. When they both turned their attention back to him, he ran a hand through his perpetually unruly hair. What? She caught sight of his famous scar before he brushed his hair back over it. We've been writing for years now. Not often, but a few times. Her letters come to Grimmauld Place. Pansy gaped at him. Hermione almost did as well. He didn't seem particularly bothered. I had tea with her there when she returned to the country. It was right before Malfoy took his position. Andromeda was supposed to meet us, but she declined at the last minute. 
Sometimes Harry caught her by surprise with the things he kept to himself. Pansy stared at him intensely. You'd help her? Yeah, he shrugged again, looking between the two witches. At one point, she helped all of us. His response was simple in its totality, and yet it said so much more. Hermione's favorite room in her house was the conservatory. It was a glass-paned addition located just off her kitchen, with pitched ceilings that gave her a room with a view of the beautiful land around her home. It reminded her that she was a part of the natural order. From any spot, she could see the world beyond her vegetable patch, the separate cobblestone walk that led from the steps to the fence, the field, and the trees in the distance that divided the end of her property and the start of the dense forest. But when simply looking wasn't enough, there was a door that opened up to the world. Pansy had spent the better part of the winter turning it into an oasis, with creative lighting, floor-to-ceiling trellis in each corner for the climbing roses, decorative rugs that kept the stone floor warm, and a small jungle of plants and flowers elegantly arranged in different places in the room. The lounge area was in the center of the room, with a dark resin wicker sofa, settee, and two matching chairs all with plush cream cushions. They artfully surrounded a glass-top table lined with candles that were spelled to turn on whenever someone entered the room. To the right, just beyond the lounge area, was a reading nook tucked off with lamps and a comfortable chaise large enough for two people. It wasn't uncommon for her to fall asleep in the chaise under a blanket while reading a book, or while gazing at the stars. To the left of the lounge was an eating area with creative lighting for when it got too dark. Hermione's original dining table, a circular glass table with six chairs she'd been sentimental to give up, served as the focal point of the area. It wasn't uncommon for Hermione to have dinner out here with their guests, or alone. Tonight the four of them sat comfortably, eating the meal Hermione had prepared, chatting under floating lamps that lined the stone outer wall of her home. The sun had dipped behind the trees as purple dusk began its mission to take over the sky and prepare it for nightfall. The stars would be making an appearance soon, too, and it was forecasted to be clear enough for them to enjoy the sight. While Ron and Harry talked and joked around like always, Hermione drifted in and out of their conversation. They grew more animated as dinner progressed, and their lips loosened over the lager Ron brought with him. Neither were keen on the wines she and Pansy drank. As usual, Ron sat a little too close, close enough for her to feel his thigh brush against hers every now and then, close enough for her to catch a small whiff of the scent she had often associated with him. Hermione knew what he was doing, the goal he was trying to accomplish. Ron wasn't nearly as subtle as he thought, especially when he rested his hand on the back of her chair while talking to Harry. He wanted her to let him back in, and he would keep trying bit by bit until she did. But Hermione was more than stubborn. She was uninterested, too. So, when his fingers absently brushed against her hair, she scooted away, silently shutting him out while Pansy looked at him disapproval. Hermione found herself more focused on Pansy than Ron during the course of their meal and conversation. Pansy had let the earlier conversation lapse with Ron's arrival, but she was well aware the other witch was plotting. Pansy was more tolerable than expected. Tactfully amicable was a term that surfaced in Hermione's mind when she'd only looked mildly disgusted as Ron waved a chicken bone in the air while explaining something or other to Harry. Pansy would play nice and bide her time like a coiled snake, waiting for the perfect moment to strike her prey. And Hermione was no one's prey. The wards alerted Hermione to the arrival of an unexpected guest. She immediately looked at Ron on her right. Percy's here. Who is that? 
Pansy nearly spit out her sip of wine. Ron's brother. Hermione nudged Ron with her elbow as he tried to figure out why his brother was there. Then she wanted it to dawn on him. Oh, right. He jumped from his seat and headed towards the door, not paying attention. He nearly clipped the settee, but recovered. He's bringing our tickets to the cannons game tomorrow. The tickets weren't free? Pansy asked with a bemused look on her face. As if I'd pay one canut to see them lose. At her comment, Ron looked both outraged and insulted. The two emotions waged war over the right to be expressed first, but ultimately, he ended up sputtering like an engine that failed to start and vanished into her house after giving Pansy a deathly glare she simply laughed at. Harry and Hermione chuckled into their respective drinks and exchanged knowing looks. Pansy wasn't wrong, but neither one would even so much as hint at that to their friend. Hermione watched as the witch finished the rest of her wine and stood, pushing her chair in. "'I have now reached my Weasley quota for one day.' Hermione would have explained, but thought it better for her to find out on her own. Harry, however, tried to give her a clue. Percy's different. Does he have table manners? It was a very serious question from someone like Pansy Parkinson. In a manner of speaking, he answered cryptically. Hermione laughed, resting her hand on her cheeks, warmed from the wine. Pansy blinked at him incredulously. In a manner of... Haven't I suffered enough? Of... Good evening. Percy's polite yet posh baritone floated from the doorway before he approached the table with Ron. Everyone turned to look. That was the sort of presence Percy had developed over the years. He'd always been different, but over time he'd grown out of his desperate need to prove he was better than his family and their circumstances. He'd become a man who knew exactly who he was, where he'd come from, and what he was worth. Percy, who was the head of the International Magical Office of Law, walked with a sort of pride that reflected all he'd learned and experienced. Hermione couldn't help but notice that the two brothers, in addition to being contraries of personality, were also visual opposites. Ron had made an effort tonight with his dark jeans, a white shirt, and brushed hair. Taller than all of his siblings except George, he moved with a swagger of self-assurance, like someone who was settled without a care in the world. Percy, on the other hand, possessed the ease of a seasoned diplomat. Tonight, he looked almost casual in grey tailored trousers, a matching waistcoat, and a white and purple checkered shirt. No bow tie. Hermione had never seen Pansy look so confused. You're a Weasley! I am. Percy looked taken aback by her brashness, but he recovered smoothly. And you are? He allowed the question to linger, but when Pansy didn't respond— as she was too busy blinking at him and like her brain had short-circuited, Hermione helped her out. This is Pansy. Percy's blue eyes briefly cut over to Hermione before returning to the black-haired witch. Ah! He took another step towards her, courteously extending his hand. And your surname? Finally she remembered herself, but didn't move to accept his offered hand. In fact, she looked at it, then back up at him. I'm between surnames right now. Harry almost choked on his drink. Ron, who had returned to his seat during the introduction, slapped him on the back. Percy suppressed a smirk of his own, but didn't retract his hand, maintained eye contact with an almost determined look on his face. For a moment, Hermione thought she'd have to intervene, but only a few more seconds passed before she extended hers as well. "'It's a pleasure to meet you,' Percy said. Ron glared at his brother. "'Oi! I thought you were just coming to say hello to Harry and Hermione!' I've changed my mind, 
he said to Ron, while still staring at Pansy, whose cheeks had taken on a slight color under his fixed gaze. She cleared her throat as she slowly pulled her hand free of his. Hermione didn't miss the way she flexed her fingers before closing it back into a fist and tucking her arm behind her back. Pansy's eyes cut to her, then flickered around the room as if she were searching for something important. Probably the portal back to the universe where everything made sense to her. She almost laughed at the thought. If you don't mind the intrusion, Percy glanced at Hermione, I think I'll stay. Of course not. Pansy here was just leaving. Percy glanced back at her. Oh, you are? To get more wine, of course, Pansy cleared her throat. She did just that before Hermione could remind her of the half-full bottle right there on the table. Percy took the empty chair next to hers, smoothing invisible wrinkles from his trousers. She glanced over at Harry, who was watching the man with the raised eyebrow that peeked over the thick rim of his glasses. Ron started talking about the seats for the game while Hermione followed her best friend's line of sight back to Percy, who was now making sure his already perfect red hair was just right. Hermione took back the rest of her wine. "'How was your day, Percy?' Percy completely bypassed the question. I didn't defend her, did I? Why does it matter? Ron looked confused. It's just pansy bleeding. Shut up, Ron, Harry and Hermione said simultaneously. The answer to his question was no, but it was also very precarious. However, it wasn't her place to tell him any of that. Being burned and ostracized from society had turned pansy into a cautious person, a planner who liked to know what was coming so she could adequately prepare herself. She was excellent at reading people, the sort of which who was jaded or arrogant enough to believe herself immune to being surprised by anyone or anything. The last time she had seen Pansy surprised by a person's actions had been when Hermione hugged her while she cried therapeutic tears over her first finished project. Pansy thought she'd had it, and everyone figured out, but was just waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. Hermione never had the heart to tell her the truth. The game of life didn't have a standard set of rules. Humans were more complicated than whatever system she had used to sort them all. One day, she would meet someone she couldn't immediately categorize. And judging by the way she'd bolted, that day was today. And that person was Percy Weasley. Percy was the only one that stood when Pansy returned with a single wine glass in her hand. She offered no excuses as to why she hadn't grabbed another bottle, either. In truth, she looked far more composed until he pulled out her chair. She stared at him. He held her gaze. The standoff lasted until Ron abruptly stopped talking about the game and glared at them both. Oh, for fuck's sake, just sit down, will you? They both glared at him, but he didn't even care. Percy thinks of himself as a perfect gentleman. Bit of a tosser, really. Ron only half meant it based on the smirk on his face. Pansy's frown deepened into distaste, and her eyes narrowed into tiny slits but she placed her wine glass on the table and sat down without further argument. Percy adjusted her chair and returned to his before reaching for an empty glass and the bottle on the table, chilled with magic. He poured himself a perfectly proper amount, then turned to Pansy. Would you care for more wine? She was hesitant, still puzzled by his entire existence, when she said, Yes, please. Percy smiled. The two most powerful warriors are patience and time. Leo Tolstoy